internets. You're tuned into the Combat Jack Show, the CombatJackShow.com. And as we usually say on the Combat Jack Show, this portion of the show has been sponsored and brought to you by Bevel, the superior shaving system. Listen, I'm going to go into my spiel later, but it's the best shaving system on the market for people that have coarse and curly hair. Go to GetBevel.com, G-E-T-B-E-V-E-L.com. Punch in the promo code COMBAT, C-O-M-B-A-T, that's me, for 20% off all your purchases and services. That's GetBevel.com. Use the promo code COMBAT, C-O-M-B-A-T. And now back to the show. Internet, you're tuned into the Combat Jack Show, the Combat Jack Show. Yeah. Com. What's up, Pete? What's going on, Combat? Man, you know, I, I can't call. It feels like it's been a long time since we've been in the it studio, hasn't, right? Though. I mean, we, we, we booked our past two, two shows back to back. So last week was uh, technically a week off. Mm-hmm. And I feel kind of like it was like a month, man. You gave vacation. I like that. Like, I, it wasn't vacation, but I just needed a break. Like, we've been putting shows out back to back to back to back, and they've been knocking it out the park, and they've been timely. And look who we have here right now, man. Look at this. Look, this is such an important week, an event, eventful week in American television. I'm saying we're watching a, an amazing and astounding black American event transpire before our very eyes. And I'm just very happy to have on the Combat Jack show somebody who's intrinsically involved with the success that is Empire Combat Jack show. Internets, welcome to the Combat Jack Show, Mr. Malik Yoba. Yay. Yeah. Yo, what's That's up, Malik? Y'all don't have, like, the background. We can put that crowd, Not All of this happens if post. we got post-production, yeah, man. We, we got, got post-production budget? Post-production. Yeah, we, we, we got, actually, it's funny because our producer, Jonathan Mena, this is the only episode that he couldn't make it today because he's got some personal family drama gotcha. kind of thing going on, but he's the best. What you hear when this drops today it's going to be completely different from what you're hearing right now in the studio. I have man. all the bells and whistles. Yeah. You, so how you doing, sir? I'm chill. I'm happy to see you. Good to see you, man. Likewise. It's yeah. been a while, right? It's been a long time. Yes, well, sir. Well, I see you on Instagram. And you know what? I saw you at a bar, I think it was like about three or four years ago in Brooklyn. Like in past. the last time we saw each other? Yeah, because you, you, you know, you, you don't walk around with bodyguards. No, sir. Uh, high fancy Hollywood star like no, yourself. Sir. You don't, you don't. Nice. Are you I live nice? in Brooklyn, man. I'm not Hollywood. Now, are you nice yeah. with your hands? I was just on Myr- Myrtle Avenue just now. Are, are you nice with your hands, Malik? I used to be. Yeah? Yeah, but I, I talk my way out of situations. Now, congratulations with, with Empire, man. Thank you. One of the things that I really enjoy about your role in Empire is you're a scary dude, man. Am I? Like, when you put Homeboy in that le- in that headlock. In the chokehold. In the chokehold. Yeah. I was like, Yoked yo, Ma- Malik is not playing, B. Yep. It's been it twenty. It's been twenty years since you've been on something this major, man. How's it feel? Um, how does it feel? How does it feel? Well, it's it's a little. It's been a lot. A little bit of deja vu, um, for me. Um, you know, I thought I was going to a, a like a family reunion, but it turned into a funeral. Mm. So, what do you mean by that? Well, you know. Um, so uh, yesterday, right, was the last episode okay. of the season finale, yes. right? And uh, so we know what happened, right? Vernon goes bye-bye. So um, what felt like um, an opportunity to revisit the DNA of something that was the blueprint for radical television. New York Undercover 20 years ago was the first 
show in the history of television to be renewed past the first season, a dramatic series with people of color as the right. lead. Never before had that happened. Right. And so the DNA of that show was um, people of color, urban stories, music that was current, stars that were current. It was fashion that was current, um, topical issues that were current. Yes. Um, and done in a way cinematically, actually done cinematically. It wasn't like straight television, you know. There was oh, you were hand- working with one of the best, Dick was, Wolf. Uh, well, yeah, Dick Wolf was a producer on that, but it was handheld, um, shot handheld. Right. And, and so it created a certain aesthetic. Um, and so that was a show that was killed before its time. I mean, it's, you know, that Empire is my 13th television series. Wow. So most people don't realize that. So um, it's the second show where I've been in a predominantly, actually third show with a predominant cast of color. The last one was a show called Thief back in 2004. We did the pilot of that, and it ran on 2005, 2006 on FX. But um, that was short-lived. We shot 12, or we were supposed to shoot 12. We only ended up shooting six right. with Andre Brower and Yancey Arias, uh, Latino Clifton Collins was in that. Um, so this for me was like down to the dude that shot the very first promo shots for New York undercover, Michael Levine, who lives in Brooklyn. He shot this, the photos, the first production stills for New York undercover 22 years ago, right. 21 years ago. He shot the first photos for empire. Wow. So everything from executives at Fox that were there 20 years ago, to from the, in the PR department, the people that run the studio used to network used to run the studio back in the day. Um, from Gladys Knight being on the show to Mary J. Blige, yes. Naomi Campbell, which to, is so reminiscent to, to of like Anthony Hemingway, the director who did Red Tails and um, who did Episode Nine. Anthony was 17 years old as a second second PA, meaning uh, or AD, meaning he's this like the third in charge assistant director when he was 17. Wow. So he ended up going on to do the wire and Treme and, and all kinds of stuff. So, um, so from coat from, uh, Terrence was a guest star in New York. Right, 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 right. You know, uh, one of my favorite episodes, which was a Bonnie and Clyde episode. He played, he was bank, uh, Robin Banks. Um, How was it working with Terrence back in the day, man? Well, Terrence was always one of them dudes that was, you know, there's certain actors that have, um, you know, there's a darkness, there's, there's, there's grit, there's, there's, you know, you, you know, they've been through some stuff. Right. Their soul carries some weight to it. Philip Seymour Hoffman was one of the people. Yes. Robert Downey Jr. Um, some gravitas. Clifton. Yeah, mm-hmm. there's just something about their life that comes through in their performance. And so, so back in the day, Terrence was that type of dude. So you knew he, you could tell back in the day he has. Yeah, there's certain actors you meet, like, you know, when I auditioned for Cool Runnings, like, yeah, he just, he just has that thing. Jeffrey Wright had that. Jeffrey right. Wright auditioned for Cool Runnings. Yes. That's where I first knew Jeffrey Wright auditioning for Tupac auditioned for Cool Runnings. That's crazy. And yeah. I, I, I definitely want yeah. to get to that. So, yeah. but, but, but it, it feels reminiscent. It feels like deja vu, man. But, you know, it, it's such a big event. You're in, in, in so many more households now than you've been recently. But not re- who me yes, or the you, show. You, I'm talking about you. Um, uh, yeah, I guess so. But see, because it's a phenomena. It is a phenomena. But for me, it's been, you know, the reality is, if you go back 20 years ago and look at the numbers that New York Undercover was doing, we were doing similar numbers. Yes, we were doing 13 to 15 million people a week. Yes. Well, now that's crazy. But relative to, you know, 
ER doing twenty nine million at the time or thirty two. And was, Sein, York, was Seinfeld on? Were you guys running concurrent with we Seinfeld? Ran, we, we ran. It was called counter programming. Okay. Seinfeld was uh, squarely mainstream network NBC. Fox wasn't even a full network at the time, right? Because you had to have thirteen hours of original programming to be considered a network. They only had nine, so and they didn't have the budgets to. You know, even do I never saw a poster for New York on the cover. Never a billboard. Yeah, there was none of that stuff that. Right, ever crazy, for crazy. New York on the cover. Yet, right. because it was relevant to a community, it resonated. And it spoke like, to a, a unspoken yeah, yeah. to audience yeah, in yeah. a sense. And so, if we had social media, then it would have been the same kind of thing as Empire. So for me, it was deja vu the whole time. But at the same time, um, it wasn't because the character was never really developed. Right. You know what I mean? So it's one of those things where I was like, word, scripts come out. You're like, really? There's like three lines here this week. It's, you know, so um, it wasn't, um, for me, something that uh, creatively fed my spirit. Right. So I tried to focus on, all right, well, let me direct. Right. And they, you know, so they promised me I can direct second season. We'll see what happens. But um, I got at my company. Iconic 32. Yes, and, and I definitely we, want to get to that. Yeah, but that that was that's the space I was in. I was like, all right, Iconic 32 is all about using pop culture to promote social good. So right. using entertainment, sports, technology, you know, um, art, music, fashion. So I said, all right, this is a show that has all of those elements. And how do we build strategy around things that are important? Like uh, last night for the season finale, yes. we did a, um, a screening at Bounce here in New York um, on 21st Street and did uh, use it as a fundraiser to raise money for the Prison to College Pipeline Program That's out good, of John man. Jay College. And, That's hot. You know, I was down in Ferguson, uh, Missouri, when I found out that my character was getting killed off in the 11th episode. Right. And we only did 12. So I didn't even know it was going down like that. Right. And so I'm, I'm literally in Ferguson, like came back to my hotel, just set up a screening where I raised like $6,000, you know, for the Urban League Save Our Sons program to provide work uh, and job training for 500 under and unemployed black men. And Lee Daniels calls him, Lee, you know, sorry. You know, they, they say, you know, we're going to have to kill off Vernon. I'm like, Vernon? How does that feel, man? Yo, that was crazy. <laughs> that, that, yo, that moment was bananas right. because um, I love Lee. Yes. You know, I definitely really enjoyed working on the show and, saw a tremendous promise on what I could bring right. to the show. Um, balance. I mean, you were definitely balanced to to to. to what is balance from a character standpoint? Right. But honestly, like for me, um, because it is deja vu and New York on the cover, like I've had a chip on my shoulder for 20 years, meaning this was something that was killed before its time and right. people will not let it go. There are people who still think we shoot that show. That, if you follow crazy. my Twitter feed, who, 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 what now, people yo, believe? B, every, what kind of yo, people? Yo, people with no TVs? All, no, man. Yo, <laughs> yo, there are people, but see, this is the thing. When you are the subject, yes. when you're the talent and you're walking around this world, around the world, you know what the audience wants. That's the beautiful thing about social media is that it's a, it, it democratized the ability to communicate what people really want and feel yes. and think. Yes. Direct to them. Yeah, right to them. So people have been telling me forever, yo, bring that show back. Are y'all still shooting new episodes? Like, it is bananas, bro. I'm like, trying to figure out why do they think you're still shooting new. Where they, are you motherfuckers seeing are, new episodes? Yo, new York Undercover has... They, they, it's is not this in they, Central America? No, it's not, no, no. It's not that they... The show has never been 
out of syndication. It may not be on the air right now, but Centric right. is running for years. That show has actually never really been out of syndication. Right. So it's always been on somebody's TV somewhere. And because people felt connected to it, they felt like, are you, is it coming back? Are there going to be more? Maybe it's sometimes they see you and they don't know what to say. Right. So people, uh, yo, 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 yeah, yeah, coming back. But, but how did I feel? That was your question. What it felt like, it felt a bit surreal because right. I literally had just left the radio station where uh, the DJ was like, yo, man, you know, how do you stay so humble? Like, here you are, you're down here in St. Louis. You don't live here. You're down here in the community. Like, no one really even knows you're here. You, and I think I'm a big deal as, like, a local DJ, but you've done X, Y, Z, blah, blah, blah. And I just said, look, man, I'm a servant. This is why I do what I do. It's never been about fame. It's never been about money. It's been about how, do, how does my life represent light in the world? How do I encourage and inspire somebody just by doing what I do and, and, and being where God wants me to be? So that's always been my, my thing. And so when I get back to the hotel and I get this call and I see the phone on my desk ring, I see Lee Daniels. How often does he call you? Uh, we Often enough. Right. I mean, he's he's pretty communicative. Um, but um, text or call or whatever. So when I, But I hadn't talked to him in a couple of weeks. And so I see, and intuitively it was just like, thumbs uh, up. Right, right, right. Up. And so when he tells me this, I was like, I knew you were going to tell me that. He's like, how did you know? I was like, dude, I just knew it. I right. felt it. And But I said, you know where I'm at. I'm down here raising money, using the show, doing a screening to raise money for social good, and you're telling me this right now. Right. I'm not surprised because y'all really didn't write much for the character this year. The writing was on the wall in a sense. Yo, the whole season, B. Right. Like third episode, Terrence was like, yo, why? Are they, what, what are y'all doing? <laughs> and Lee's like, was Terrence your agent? I'm like, I ain't tell him to say that. Like, why is Terrence saying was he Was he kind of slick when he said that No, shit? no. Terrence was like, yo, Malik should be directing. Because, you know, sometimes directors come through that don't have all, a lot of experience. I've spent over 10,000 hours on television sets. So you're like, an expert. You're an expert in this. Absolutely. Yes. That's right. Yo. The way he said That's right. Yo, because it's, it's, you're an idiot if you're not. Exactly. It's the best film school in the world. <laughs> you're an Ikea and, chair. And, and, and so for the young actors, like <laughs> young actors like Yaz, who plays Hakeem, or Tian Sereo, who plays Tian. I'm literally on set giving those kids right. acting lessons before they go shoot the scene. Like, just like in the beginning of the season, I'd say, come here, man. Because you can tell that, first of all, they didn't have the experience. They never right. acted before. So you're only as strong as your weakest link, which is I, I learned that from John Candy doing Cool Running. Yes. I mean, never forget when Candy said, like, just make every scene count. And so when they're young actors coming up, and I teach anyway, and I've been teaching acting since I was, like, 18. And so for me, I see them. I had to pull them to the side. But in terms of the technical aspects of, of telling stories and camera lenses and angles and why you shoot a certain, like, that's so deeply ingrained in me that you have to direct as an extension of your experience. It comes naturally. For some people. Right. For me, well, it but, does. But yeah, being yeah. in a position that you've been in, someone that's passionate about your craft, somebody yeah. who cares about what you do and your, your, the people around you, yeah. it, it, it comes out naturally. Yeah, you got to. Man. Right. Got to. And he's also became like a coach, you know, like like when you're saying that, I'm thinking of how that intersects with even sports. Like you're like a, you know, a head coach. Or yeah, I was like Derek coach. Jeter. Like I felt like Derek Jeter, yeah. like in his last season with the Yankees. Okay, like, yeah, exactly. Yo, I've been here. I've won championships. I know what this is. Like, just come here. Let, let me, me put let you me, on. Yeah, real yeah, quick. Yeah, let, yeah, let me ask you though, yeah. man. In, in 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 your experience, and is this possible when when the show calls you and they they tell you they they're gonna kill off your character? 
is there any type of negotiating? Like, yeah, like, can we can we yeah, make this work? Yeah, yeah, yeah. There was definitely that. There was definitely he was like, I don't know, man, because Lee doesn't run the show. Right. Him and Danny Strong created the show, but he doesn't run it. Um, so there's a woman named Eileen Chaikin who created the L Word that actually runs the show, meaning she runs the, the writer's room. She's in charge of hiring the directors, you know, oversees the whole um, creative process of the show. Then there's someone else who handles the physical production of a show. Um, so I was definitely like, dude, like, really? Like, there's no way we could work. That's the story. Right. It's bad enough y'all haven't written anything real significant for me to, to, to sink my teeth into. People don't even really know who Vernon was. Right. And in my head. And it, it seems like there's such a back Yo, B, like, story. we came up, you were my attorney yes. at one point. Yes, you sir. Came, we, you were representing me uh, in music. You didn't know that, did you? He he was, I do know that. You told me that. He was, you were representing me in music yes. at a time we tried, we started our little label. And so I come up with a music background. I grew up, you know, like Dame Dash, grew up in my building. I remember when him and Jay first met or watching Russell create Def Jam in New York City. You know, watching all these cats, so I knew who the Vernon type cat is right. supposed to be. In fact, by the third episode, I asked him, "Did y'all even write a bio for this dude? Because some of the stuff that you, how am I supposed to connect these dots? Like, who are these people to each other?" They're like, "Nah, we didn't." I was like, "Do you mind if I write one?" So I wrote one that for me, I had to anchor myself right. in the truth of that relationship. This is a dude that, you know, came from the south. Father was a pastor. They moved to like. Bed-Stuy in the 80s, beginning to crack. It's never about the crack game, but knew who was doing what. Was with that kid that was like... And tempered what? enough, tempered enough so he knew, or people knew that he had a presence to not fuck with him. Exactly, right. exactly. But went to school, got the degree, did the right thing, met, you know, went to Wharton, met Lucius when he was in Philly, had a little party, him and Cookie were hanging out, saw the kid had skills, and was like, yo, I'm going to do the business. You do the creative. We're going to build this empire. Like, that's how and that's how it has to be. Right. Right? Like, that's what none of sense. these cats build a record label by themselves. No. And and so for me, because the show wasn't created by people from the music industry and don't really understand the value to me of those relationships and those stories or just cho cho chose to the not The subtleties really of do. the importance yeah, of, of those that. relationships. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And so... I had to root myself as an actor in that truth. Right. Otherwise, you're just floating around like whatever y'all tell me to do. I'm gonna and do. you're not and making I'm, each scene count. Yeah, and I'm not, and I'm, and I'm not trying to just be a yes man. Right. Like, like, and and you you were very, you were very determined that your character didn't come off as his yes man. Absolutely. Right. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah. Initially, what in terms of what was on paper in the initial script was it leaning towards that in a sense? Nah, man. I mean, the thing that you know. Vernon was described as the chairman of the board, yes. right? So even though there wasn't much in the pilot, I was like, if he's a chairman of the board and they're trying to take a company public, there's a lot of room to talk about the business aspects of these two black men building a company in hip-hop in America right now. And so I thought we'd have an opportunity to get into the business of it, that it wouldn't be this high drama soap opera about, you know, everyone backstabbing each other. And fight. I knew there'd be some issues around jockeying for position, right. the King Lear, three sons, you know, who's going to take over the throne uh, construct. But I thought it was going to be a different experience. So, you know, somebody's script comes up and you're like, oh, so we doing The Sopranos now. Right. Mm. Oh, oh, so now I'm covering up for murders now. Right. Really? So you're like, big pussy in the same. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Forget about it. What Forget are you going to do? Forget about it. Let me ask you something. If you, what if are you, you going to ask me? You going to ask me? Let me ask hey, you. Hey, listen, pussy. 
<laughs> if if you didn't uh, write the bio, do you think that your character could have floated in a way? Like, I, I don't know, man. It's one of those situations where um, whenever you would ask, like, where is this going? Nah, we can't really say because of the network, this or that. I've, I, and you, you got to keep people in the dark, in a sense. You don't have to. Right. I mean, I've seen... I've done shows where I have three, four scripts in advance. Right. Like, so you know. Yeah, so you're they, getting they, the, the scripts the week of or the, uh, the episode? Maybe a few days right. a few days before okay. the next the next episode. But I've in other situations, you know, I've had a very different experience with the showrunners who were like, nah, we're going to let you know exactly what's going on. Because especially if you have flashback scenes, you have to know who you are, where right. you're coming from. So this was an odd experience in that sense. And they'd say, well, there's so many people who chime in. They changed their mind i'm like well i don't know uh, uh, you know i i it, it was weird it was a weird experience in that sense yeah. yeah let me ask you man like when i watch empire and i enjoy the show like like right. my wife actually piqued my interest she's usually the one that's like brings me to, to watch i was like ah, but then she got me to, and, and i loved it and do people make the connection between empire and hustle and flow for some people, I mean, you, they say they feel like it's an extension of Terrence and Taraji's right. characters. Or, yeah, yeah, they, that's been said, but not too much. Yeah, how amazing is it to be in Taraji's presence? Because she's putting it down right now. Yeah. She's I mean, putting I, it yeah, down. Yeah, 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 she is. She is. And it's testament to what happens when they put the material in front of you. Right. If she had Vernon's lines, <laughs> it, 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 wouldn't be the, be the right. it wouldn't be the cookie. So, yeah. and that's one of the things that, you know, I'm happy for everybody right. that gets to win. You know what I mean? And. I'm really happy for her. Um, single mom moved to LA. Didn't really get going till she was in her thirties, late twenties, or you know what I mean. Which is and, which is old in the industry. It's it's ancient, right? You know how you know how many women are at that age that are doing it, and she's she's ascending still, which yes. I love, and she deserves it because she's yeah. incredibly talented. Like we finally had a scene together, just me and her. In the season finale, I was like, "Yo, it took twelve episodes." <laughs> like that's the kind of shit to me that was like really like you don't see the value in making amazing moments between these actors that could really get in and extending and them play. Right. And re but you know, but at the end of the day, my father always said, build your own generator. So when they turn off the power, you still have lights. There you go. Mm. And so my whole life has been 12 other hustles going on at the same time. And especially as an actor, other actors look at you like, how do you even have the bandwidth to think about this other shit? In fact, Lee Daniels, when we first started, like, I came, we did the pilot. My company submitted a proposal to Fox a year ago, last March, before the pilot was even picked up. Just saying, based on what this show is, this is how, from a marketing strategy standpoint and creating brand extension, we can really blow this shit up. I was concerned because I had seen so many missed opportunities in the past for shows I've been involved in. Typically because as the only black person in the, in the cast, who has a sense of the culture as we refer to it and knowing how to connect with people. If you, if your PR people don't know who Russ Parr is or Tom Joyner, uh, you know, any of the black shit, why we need to be a CIAA, why we need to be at Essence Music. Right. Like you're like, I'm tired of having to like convince people. These are the places we need to be to, so we could be relevant for the people that, that want to see what the hell I'm doing next, if nothing else. Right. And so I was very proactive with that. And so I remember talking to Lee. Were, were people listening to you when you or was it? They will listen, um, but do people take action is another right. story. I mean, they'll say yeah, it was a great idea, and but Lee was asking like, why don't you just f focus on the acting, man? And you're involved with the, the, the 
But you market, can't just. I, I, and that's what he said. He's asked the question, and then he's like, "Well, I guess you can. Right. Huh? You this is your thirteenth show. I get. I'm like, I, how can I sit here with all the the knowledge that I have, not just opinions, but knowledge, experience, experience, life experience, life experience, right, right. actual experience, and, and shut the fuck up. Like, how do you expect me to and shut the? Fuck they're not up? saying shut the fuck up. They're listening. They're going, "Yo, this is good ideas," and we but, should, you know, but it's not what they do. So he's worrying about editing or his his Richard Pryor movie. And I'm saying, like, when I first met with the writers last summer, uh, 13 writers in the room. And normally bring an actor in when there's a writer's room. I said, what's my character? Where are we going to go? I didn't ask any of those questions. I went around the room and asked the first the interns to come join the circle. They were like, nah, we just, I'm like, no, no, your opinion counts. And I went around and asked everybody, what do you think this show is? Give me your 50,000-foot view of what this show is. Because I needed to feel that philosophically we were all on the same uh, page. page. Right. Because if I'm going to leave my family for six months and go live in another city or state or whatever to film something, then I want to know I'm with people that at least of the same mind and spirit. And to me, the show is doing exactly what I thought it would do right. because there's nothing else like it. Yeah. There's nothing else out there. Where is there a black family drama? So that alone is going to attract X amount of interest and in who the cast is and other elements. So we had a recipe for success. And I just want to make sure that philosophically, spiritually, emotionally, we were all like, yo, we could change the world right now. And the show has, but on a very surface level right. initially. Right. Yes, it's entertaining. How deep are we really going to get into the mental health issue? where it really matters. Right. Like, what if this show was the one that started the ALS bucket challenge? How deeply are you going to represent Cookie as a formerly incarcerated woman and what that represents for women like her? Right. You know, how deeply are you going to address Are you invested the in these issues? Yeah, that you, man. We that, shooting that, that, that in Chicago. We, we shooting in Chicago right. where last summer 84 kids got shot over 4th of July weekend. How are we creating bridges for those young people in the south side of Chicago? to be involved in this production. How are we doing things that really, really matter? Right. That's the shit I care about. Are we leaving? A, what kind of footprint are we leaving? Absolutely. Yeah. And so I can't do it. I've never done it just for for, for entertainment, ever. Let me, let me ask you something, man. And, and, and we're definitely going to, you know, people that listen to the show know that we're going to go take a stroll down memory lane. Right. But, you know, you you, you come from, well, you, you, you thrived during, I want to call Black Hollywood's, golden era you know in the 90s you had shows like you know and live in color new york undercover arsenio hole the cosby show you know just a host of black shows in the 90s that were doing well what what, what happened man well i'm not in those rooms making those decisions right. i can't i can't really account for you know what happened in terms of network television but the conventional wisdom is shows exist to sell advertising yes and so if advertisers don't believe they can sell their product against whatever the content is then they're not going to they're going to want to buy into it um so that, I, that's I, a great answer yeah but being somebody that was actually involved in it what did you see happen like what, what like what changed i mean was I it think something short term the short term memory loss right i think that you're as good as your last five minutes i think that people forget people don't see because now people can make the connections again through social media yes they can see what's important to folks, but they were they asking you, did you want New York undercover to go off the air or live in color or live in single? They didn't ask you. No, they didn't ask they you. They just do it. Right. Because, you know, that's 
the way that the business works. But and so I, I really, I really don't have an answer other than, than knowing that if people believe they're going to make money, they're going to go for it. Did you ever think you would see a time beyond those days where it'd be like a dirt, like there's, there's really anything out there for us anymore right there, right now? Well, I mean, it always goes back to the same, my what did my father say? Build your own generator. Right. So, and that generator, you know, building is who's writing these, these shows, who is producing them, who, who are the execs that are making these decisions? Who are they? I mean, who's they, they this new generation? Like, they're not people that look like you and me. But but who's this new generation? Whereas it seemed like, you know, we had something that was definitely successful, something right. that was just market tested and something that was proven. How, how do people forget, man? Well, you know, the reality is, though, you know, you do have blackish. You do have yes. being Mary Jane. Mm -hmm. You do have scandal. You, do, you, you didn't have a Shonda Rhimes back then. No, you did not. You didn't have that. The closest you might have had to that was Keenan, maybe, maybe Bill Cosby. Right. But no one was a, like Shonda Rhimes has taken the space like a Norman Lear who gave us the Jeffersons mm. and, you know, All Sam the from the Sun right. or, or Aaron Spelling. Right. She's that woman now, a, a David E. Kelly or, uh, you know, uh, Aaron Spelling. She's that, that person. So we didn't have that before. She alone has given us the practice in Grey's Anatomy and, you know, so all those shows. Um, so now you have Empire. And now you have networks that are scrambling for the next Empire. Dude, <laughs> this next pilot season, right. like, you get know. Your shit in. I've, get, get I've your shit in. I've seen scripts for shows with black leads, right. you know. So they're starting to go, all right. So we need, I, we need, we need, so, yeah. so the pendulum is swinging again. It's swinging. I'm developing something myself with, with um, some friends. Um, you know Rhonda Cowan? Yes. Oh, Rhonda, Rhonda. Rhonda Cowan. Rhonda Cowan. Uh, Rhonda is, is a great, but she's such a character also. Like, she's such a, a character needs to be based on Rhonda Cowan. I'm going to tell her that. Maybe we'll put one but, in But, this, but in would this. you agree? Uh, yeah, I mean, Rhonda, that's heart, man. That's good yes. people. You know what I mean? She's, uh. What up, Rhonda? You know, you know Rhonda's been, uh, in the business a long time. Long time. And, you know, working in production and, you know. Um, so she sent me a script recently that I liked. I sent it to a friend of mine, Courtney Parker, who used to write on, uh, uh, Law and Order, Criminal Intent is set in the, in, in the sports world. Um, and it's, it, it, it can have those same elements that we talked about, you know, that will work. Um, but it's something I can be in control of. Right. Cause right, I'm right. not, I'm not well for people. You're like, not, you're not, you don't like getting killed yeah, off, right? Not, not <laughs> randomly. Not cause. They're like, well, Games of Thrones does it. Somebody yeah. should die, and we got to figure out who it should be. And, and you know, this week I'm is like, you. I'm like, yeah, I don't know. I, even with Sopranos, I, I never liked that. Like, you know, the way they did everything. But I will say, with listening to you and, and knowing that when they kill characters off, and all your experience over the years, and seeing people like Dame Dash dropping like Los Sidus and stuff, or, but even not even him, the way you speak about Instagram and how powerful it is, and how you know the direct the consumer. Have you ever thought about like? You know, making your own, like, platform of movie and dropping it like that. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, you know, I've been creating content for a long time. So, you know, getting, writing a film is all about, you know, or make it, getting a film made. I've just got to write it. Then you got to raise money to right. do it or spend X amount of your own money. And so, um, yeah, this films, um, I'm working on a bunch of stuff, film stuff, web stuff, reality stuff. Um, and I always have. It's just been hard to get it done. In fact, Rhonda, speaking of Rhonda, you know, I have a film called What's on the Hearts of Men that I wrote first as a play back in 2000. We toured 
in the urban theater market, made almost $3 million with that. This is before Tyler Perry blew with his players, right? Right. So here I am. The first, just, just going to talk about memory lane. So back when I f- first got off New York on the cover, um, David E. Talbot had been asking me to do those gospel plays forever. Right. And I was like, man, that's You don't want to do the Chitlin, Chitlin Circuit? That Chitlin so, so Circuit is money, asked, B. He, he started asking me in like 96 right. to do that. And I grew up here in New York doing legitimate theater. So I was like, I ain't going to do that. So finally. <laughs> I like the way you said legitimate. Yeah. Like, yeah. like, no, like, that's like, what a, it's called, like a cocky New York. No, 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 no. Right. Legit theater is the term right. for union shows. Okay. Act, that's what it's called. Okay. It's actually called legit theater. Right. And so um, uh, I couldn't do those touring shows because I was like, man, that's that's not real. So back in like 99, I got a series called Bull, which right. is based on Wall Street. And we shot the pilot. We were shooting the pilot. Uh, and, and we shot the pilot. And then I had like four months between the time I was going to go shoot the series. So Dave Talbot asked me again to do one of his plays. And I was like, all right, I'll go out there. What, what changed your mind? I'm a t- because David and I had done a little independent film together. Okay. And so I brought him on set, you know, Bill Duke, young guy with Bill Duke. And, you know, again, me just always trying to be of service to other people and their dreams. And so I said, all right, you're trying to do this movie thing. Come on the set of New York Undercover. Learn what it's like to be in a real set. All right, you're doing one of these plays. I got 12 weeks. He was like, I'll pay you 15 grand a week and, huh? and 5% of anything over 300000 Well, the reality is we made $5 million in 12 weeks. Wow. $3 million was profit. Right. Doing a play with black people that was not quote-unquote legit theater, that was non-union, that was crazy. And See, I, was, I love that, though. I, I love like, that story. Yeah, though. I was like, word? That's how this, this game is? Right. So I went to the product, promote, promoter, and I said, if I write one, will you put it up? He was like, yeah. So. I wrote What's on the Hearts of Men with my brother, um, A. Rahman Yoba, and um, who you know. Yes. And um, we put that up, and we actually, what's crazy about that is we held auditions on 9 11. Mm. And um, that didn't of, go that well, huh? It did not. It did. <laughs> but one of the craziest stories about that was where, where were the auditions being held? Right here in New York, right downtown. So downtown. There was this actor. Um, named Mike Lamell, who was from Virginia, who heard about the audition. He was driving up to New York to come audition. And um, planes at the Pentagon. He's stuck in traffic on the highway. And he's like, God, if I'm supposed to make it to New York, show me a sign. Right as he prayed that prayer, my producing partner, Chuck West, drove, was driving up the New Jersey Turnpike, and he saw Chuck. And he was like, yeah, I'm supposed to go do this show. Long story short, um, we still end up doing that show. Right. We we went out on the road October 11th, a month after 9-11. Wow. And we were out there for 12 weeks. And we still did like $3.5 million. Right. And so when that show got to L.A., um, the producers, the promoters wanted to pull it because ticket sales were, were a little slow. We were only at about... 65, 70%. But that's still good in the shadow oh, of 9 11. No, dude, it was crazy. Yeah. It was crazy. And uh, the producers wanted to pull the show. And I said, nah, we can't. We're in LA. We got to do this like a Hollywood joint. And so I called up favors like, Will Smith, like, yo, I need you on the red carpet with your kids, like with the babies. And, <laughs> I, and we did like the first official like red carpet premiere at the Wilshire Hotel 
in LA. It was like who's who of black Hollywood treated it just like a film premiere. And everybody showed up. We made our money. And I remember Ruben Cannon, who um, started producing with Tyler Perry a few years later. At the end of the show, Ruben ran into my dressing room. He's like, yo, Malik, if we had baskets to pass out right now, people would tie. He's like, I want to turn this into a movie. And I was like, all right, bet. He was like, I'm doing my first one with Dave Talbert, and the next one is going to be with you. Did y'all see that movie? No. Exactly. It's never got made. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> I did not see that. I'm glad you were yeah. yeah, yeah, I saw it. <laughs> <That's a> good... <laughs> no, yeah. nah, it never got made. So Ruben ended up working with Tyler Perry and bringing Tyler's product that was being promoted by the same uh, promoter right. to, to, uh, to, to Hollywood or helping, you know, to, to get it out to the masses. And so the, with the success of that play, I thought it should be pretty easy. Like, all right, look, we made, Almost three and a half million dollars with this one. Maybe five with this one. Like, there's a real audience out there right. for it. Let's just let's create like a little incubator right. that can take these plays, put them on the road, show proof of concept. Basically, they can make money, then do them as film or developing a te- television property. Everything that Tyler Perry ultimately did is everything that was in my business plan from 2004. So here you go again, being ahead of your time. Yeah, it's, is, happened, is it's, that happened, shit, it's happened my whole life. Isn't bro. that shit annoying, man? A little bit. Um, um, you know, it's not. I don't. I don't know if it, I won't say it's annoying. It's just one of those things. Like that started for me, like in high school, bro. Right. Like before the troop jackets came out. Shout out that, to troop. Yo, that was in my head. Like varsity jackets instead of the wool, make them all leather. Use bright colors, block block coloring. Then here come the troop jackets. Yeah. I used to make leather bags when I was in high school. I took class at Parsons. You know, let's and, let's go back. Let's go back. Right. But before we go, I, I want to ask you one th- one more thing about the you know going independent and have you have you seen Money and Violence? Nah, but I nah I heard about it though. I need to check it out. Now nah, check it out, man, because yeah. I, it's 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 interesting. We had them on the show a couple of months ago, and it's these young brothers um, in Brooklyn, young, yep. ha- young Haitian. I know brothers. some kids uptown, Dominican kids yeah. doing something called the Block. Yeah, the same. Shout out to my boy. Um, damn, I want to say Gabrielle. It's not Gabrielle. I'll think about it in a minute. What his real name is, but we gotta uh, think of a Dominican name. Yeah, no, nah, it's not. Nah, um, Luis. Nah, it's not. Fuck, man. Uh, I, it'll come back to me. He's gonna be mad at me. But anyway, um, who created the block? Same right. idea. Dominican kid, hungry. I love his story. Like he, um, um, uh, always wanted to be a filmmaker. Came from Dominican Republic. He was like nine. Used to watch all these movies. Tell his mother one day I'm gonna be a director. She was like, "You're crazy. Go to school." And he bought cameras, saved up his money, and then he just started writing and shooting his own joints. And uh, he's dope. Yeah. He's dope. And so, same concept, though. It's amazing, yeah. man. It's just yeah. amazing how, I mean, the thing was right on, the, the, the technology was right on our noses. You know, right. the, the YouTube. And and what these kids did, man, and, and, and how they kind of, in, in a sense, revolutionized black filmmaking again, man. It's, it's just yeah. amazing, man. But that's the, that's the build your own generator. Yes. You know, take the power in your hands and just shoot, you know. Let's go back, man. You, now, you were born in the Bronx. Yes, sir. And you remember growing up in the Bronx? Did you grow up in the Bronx? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, Six kids, right? Six kids in my family, yeah. Um, born in the Bronx, South Bronx, back in 1967, Lincoln Shit. Hospital. Um, so you saw Bronx burn, huh? I was living in the South Bronx, but that's all we knew. Like, right. the Congas in the park, the right. Black Spades, the Savage Nomads. In fact, there's a documentary called uh, Rumble, uh, uh, black rumble in the Bronx or something like that. Rumble Kings. 
which I have to see. It's a doc. It's a doc documentary documentary. called Rumble, the Rumble King. About the gang? Yeah, about the gangs in the Bronx. In the 70s? In the 70s, yeah, which I need to see. 70s was a scary time, huh? Yeah, yeah, it was, but that's what it was. But that's what you knew. That's what you knew. Like looking out the window, seeing the dudes with the cutoff uh, denim jackets with the, you know, the Black Spades, the Savage Nomads, hearing the Kungas in the park, you know, the the, the, the sneakers over the, 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 the wire. The telephone yeah, so so you, you growing up, what, what was your household like, man? The household, man. Well, we were Muslim, first of right. all. So Strict? Uh, my father's pretty strict, right. yeah. Wake up every day at 5 o'clock, crack a dawn to pray. Have to fast during Ramadan. Had to study Arabic. Um, didn't celebrate Christmas, but would lie about it. Like, all your friends knew you were Muslim because you had this funny little hat on your head. You had a funny name nobody could pronounce. And uh, you didn't eat pork like everybody else. You go on the spring break. The You've break. never eaten pork in your life? I started eating pork recently. Yes, like, nigga. Yes, started, yes. Yo, yes, believe. <laughs> yes, yes. I start, no, I actually, I've, I've been eating pork-flavored food, like Brussels sprouts with some pancetta in it. But right, I don't, man, you got to go I, the whole way. Stop yeah, playing nah, around nah, the, the nah, you know. I'm, I'm, yeah, I haven't done it yet. I okay. Done it yet. That's like the last vestige of still being, <laughs> being Muslim. But, um. But growing up, but you you know you have the Christmas break, and you lie to your friends when you go. Yo, what you get for Christmas? And I was stupid because like they knew I was Muslim, right? But I would go down the list of all the toys my friends got back in the neighborhood. Then I go back to school. Yeah, I got the pinball machine and GI Joe, the, the Hot Wheels, and, and the, the, <laughs> the Lionel Train. But 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 what would your father do? What what do you do? My father was a frustrated musician. My father um, ultimately worked in the hospital. Um, Albert Einstein uh, College of Medicine um, in the Bronx in Montefiore Hospital as an x-ray technician. Mm-hmm. And then he also worked in uh, Graham Court in Harlem, where which was the dope spot in um, New Jack City. Yes. That's the building that they yes, used. Yes, where yes, they yes, had yes. The, the Carter building. Yeah, exactly. Um, so downstairs was a, a clinic, and he was an x-ray technician at that clinic. And he used to make my brother and I come to that clinic and file the x-rays mm. thousands of them you know how thin an x-ray is bro yes and they were all out of order and we had to like one out of that just sounds like us, good times and pay us two dollars good times did you enjoy He'd that job us, hell no <laughs> he pay us two dollars right and we'd walk all the way from 108th street and first avenue spanish harlem up to 116th and 7th avenue to file x-rays with the dope fiends with the big swollen hands yes. with the dope fiend nod as kids, that was crazy. And, and yeah. what, what were you learn? Like, what were you? What was? What were you learning or picking up from that? From those experiences? Right? Well, looking back, man, my father, I, I credit him for the hustle. Right. You know, I mean, because that dude, you know, although he worked in the hospital um, and worked in the clinic, and he sold clothes, and um, ultimately sold weed, which I didn't know. I found out in high school. I found his stash one day. I was like, was, did, did you? Did you cop his stash? Was, Regular was, weed? Was, was it dirt? Nah, it wasn't dirt. Nah. Nah. Did you did you pinch take a little uh, pinch I off? Might of have, it? I might have. I might have. <laughs> I might have. Yo, it was a crazy story. I remember he's dead now, so he can't do nothing to me. But my father, um, I remember one time walking into his room and he was cleaning his gun. He had a magnum. Damn. Um, a magnum. A long, a long barrel magnum. Yeah. And he had this like unit built around the bed that covered the actually my mother had that done, but it, it covered the radiator like a almost like a shelving kind of thing. Behind the bed, they had like potted plants. They had it checked out, sexy, and uh, but he had like this little like door open where the little like 
like it was about this wide and you open it up. A little stash yeah, box. Look, nah, but it was like part of the compartment. Right. And you open it, that's how he can get to the radiator uh knob to like turn it up and down. But in that was like a dummy wall. And so I saw he, I saw that it was open while he was cleaning his gun. I was like, oh shit, that's what he's so I sat next to him, just watched him clean his gun. And then when he wasn't home. And he, and he, didn't, he didn't hide it. He couldn't. Like, it was kind of like I busted him. Right. Like, he's just in his room cleaning his gun. So he continued cleaning. And he just continued cleaning the gun. Right, right. And I sat next to him like, wow, okay, I'm looking at the gun. How, how old were you? About? I was in middle school, man. Right. Like 12, 13. 12, 13. Very and, formative years. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I saw he had the door open. I was like, oh, that's what he stash. So when he wasn't home, I went in there <laughs> and like, snooped around and I realized it was a dummy wall opened the wall and then that's where the gun was that's where bullets were he had stashes of cash and he had like Hello, what did your father really do man yo my father was a <laughs> yo, he was a hustler man right, right. He, his thing was he had six kids yes and and he was he, your mom was young my mother was night uh 16 when she met him he was 32 right okay and she stayed with they stayed together till she was 32 and six kids they split up uh and we left with him. Right. Well, we were left with him. Right. Her and she, my, she broke out. The cops came to the house. They had a little altercation. The cops asked her to leave. Imagine that. 1977, a black man with six kids in the house. And the cops say, ma'am, I think you should come with us. I mean, but uh, that was, but once again, and this is what I try to explain to this generation, that that, that grew up under stop and frisk. It was a different time, man. Like, yeah. like it, you know, I don't think there's been a time when policing, I don't glorify the days of the past, but. It was a different type of police officer. Yeah. It was yeah. a different type of police so. officer. I think so. Yeah. Well, yes and no. I mean, you know, we did have hoses turned on us. Yeah, but they weren't dogs But and... they weren't shooting us every fucking no, week. No, no, no. Definitely not. You, but they knocked my father's tooth out when he was a teenager. They were tough as fuck. Yeah, they yeah. knock you out, but yeah. you yeah, they live to they talk about it. Yeah, they weren't killing me. Let me get this tooth yeah. fixed. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, yeah, I went back and saw the stash, and I started tapping in, and I, you know. Um, but I also took some money, because my father had a paper route from right. eight years old, right? to 16 and so every week my father would make me give him money right so at that point i had saved about well, he had you giving him, him money, money from your save, paper oh to, to save. save for you right so at that point i had like 400 dollars saved right and so he had cash with 100 dollars bills like rolls and so it's crazy man. i knew that he would have never in a million years thought i'd tap the stash right so i appropriated funds from his and stash. he never knew he, I'm sure he noticed because right. it was hundred dollar bills. Right, but but he had a lot was, of hundred dollar. He bills. wasn't going to come back to me and right. go, yeah, yeah. "Were you in my?" Because <laughs> otherwise, he would know I saw where he kept all right, this right, stuff. Right, right, so right, right. He incriminate himself. Yeah, that, those were, that's one of the little things I got away with. So, so when you guys moved to <laughs> when you guys moved to Harlem, was it was it culture shock? Was it different? No, not at all. Not at all. We moved from the Bronx. And crazy story, Michael DiLorenzo, who played my co-star in New York on the cover, cover we used to live on the same block really and the, we didn't know each other that's then. crazy but as kids we at the actually, same time yes sir and you we, you did never had, saw him never, never knew saw him. him never knew him that's crazy we lived on the same block underhill avenue in the uh, undercliff in the in, in the bronx um now nah, but we first moved to from the bronx to um 96 and third where the mosque is right yes. now that used to be tenements okay and i went to elementary school right across the street and so we lived in those tenements while 1199 was being built in right. east harlem um, and so we were the first family to move in there. So it wasn't culture shock at all because that built though that complex. Uh, we moved in November of seventy four. It didn't open till seventy five January. 
but it had Olympic size swimming pool. Um, it had the basketball court. So you guys were moving sauna. on. Up. Yeah, we we had a duplex apartment, river views, terrace. So mm-hmm. yeah, we yeah, my father yeah, he was like, and he was part of the hospital union that brought that building to right. life. So he looked at it like now, we were we were now, we were living. I read somewhere, man, that that you got shot when mm-hmm. you was fifteen. Yeah, what happened, man? Um, what were you doing, man? I was leaving. Um, I I went to to Park West High School. Um, because my father wouldn't let me go to the performing arts high school. Why not? Because he called it, like, you're not going to ever make a living being an actor. Did he so, think it was, like, some sissy shit? Or No, nah, he just thought that um, that that's not what you do. Like, you're not going to make a living. Like, you know, find a vocation. So let me, let me interrupt you. Like, my audience always hates when I interrupt, I guess. You knew you wanted to be an actor. Or you wanted to be an artist. Yeah, since I was four. But let me ask, I'm gonna ask, ask that other, answer the other question. Yes, I did. I saw Alice in Wonderland when I was four. And I, I knew I wanted to be part of that magic on right. stage that I saw off Broadway. Um, but I was leaving Park West High School um, January 18th, 1983. And uh, there was a fight in the middle of the street. And Printing High School was down the block. Right. And so at 3 o'clock, you have like 3,000 kids in the street going home. And nine kids are beating up on this one kid. In 83. In 83. Yeah, when New York was hot. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Because yeah. that's if when yeah. I remember, like where Worldwide Plaza is now on 50, that was all at one big ass park. I remember lot, that from 8th Avenue all the way to 9th Avenue. And, and it's kind of funny because 80, it was like from 81, 82, 83, as we were growing up, that's when I noticed some of my friends were carrying guns now. Like yeah. things started really changing. Yeah, yeah, you know yeah, yeah, yeah. And Park West at that time was known as the Wild Wild West. Right. Um, and so. Kids are in a fight in the street. At the time, I was studying martial arts. You know, my father was what, very, what, what discipline? Um, I studied straight karate, taekwondo, and then I studied a style called Ivy Jitsu, which was taught by a cat in Harlem named Master B. And he kind of took a few different styles and, and came up with his own. So between my father being the sort of repressive spirit that he was, uh, they used to beat my ass with extension cords, like butt naked till you bleed. Right. Type shit. Right. Um, and the belt? No belts. Extension, like extension that wire right That's all you needed was an extension. No, I know. I know. I, no, I, I, that's no that's all you, you, don't, you don't, don't need no belt. There was no belt. I know. The belt didn't whistle like that. I might have got hit with a belt like when I was really young, but after that, it was extension cord. Like well, slave, what, slave what, stuff. Were you doing something? Or was he just. Yo, rep- you got repressed. a bad report card. Right. You spoke back. You, like, he, that was. So his he was a way. disciplinarian like, like that. Bananas. Right. Like bananas. Um, and so, um, uh, he, he, you know, I had to go to, so when I'm leaving school, I see this fight going on, and I'm watching these kids beat beat this kid up, and I was like, yo, man, like, look at these punks, man. And I was like, I wish I could do those again. Because it was ridiculous. Like, nine dudes on one guy, one had a baseball bat, one had a golf club, and I was like, man, that's just crazy. Next yeah. thing I know, Cap pushed me to move people out the way so they could beat this kid. I More? Pushed, yeah, yeah. And I pushed him back. We had some words, and another kid came up behind me, grabbed me in the neck, um, kind of like how I choked Andre. On, uh, Love on that choke, man. Yeah, choke was so perfect. That's some yoke him up. Yeah, threw me on the ground and uh, told another kid to shoot me. And uh, so you, you, You're hearing ground. this? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Kid pushed the kid back. Another guy grabs me around the neck, throws me on the ground, tells a third kid, yo, cap him, cap him. Back when people used to say, cap him, yeah. cap him. Put a cap in him. Yeah. And um, kid pulls back, pow. And takes a shot and hits me in the neck. Uh, just a graze wound. Right. Uh, 
that ended up in the wall. There's a Thai restaurant on, on 50, 50th Street that for years was still there. And a bullet lodged in the, in the wall, and uh, which I found out later. Um, but it's true what they say. You think your life is flashing before your eyes. You saw, you saw them whippings and the gun in the wall. And the time and... I yelled at my sister right. and hit her and, and all that. And and you you felt that graze. I, I smelled. It smelled like burning hair. Right. And, you know, it happened so quick. You just smell like, damn, so it smells like it's burning. I had a white hoodie on. had gray leaves. Remember the colored leaves? Yes. We put the permanent crease in and a pair of. Those uh, Converse All Stars with that had the mesh on them, like mm-hmm. back in the eighties. You know, styling. And I looked out of my white hoodie and I had a little blood on it. And Kid Marvin, uh, like yo, yoba, yoba, and tells me to run to the hospital. St. Clair's Hospital it used to be on Fifty Second Street and Ninth Avenue. He ran to the hospital and they just looked at me like, "Damn, really?" Like, actually, like I remember, you, you're here for not, that? I remember showing up and they give us this pile of paperwork. And saying, fill out this paper as a kid. Yes, with 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 this with this with in, a wound. Bullet, yes, and I'm like, do you, are you, do you not see the bullet wound? And then they admitted me, and uh, the doctors. Um, uh, I just remember waking up the next day, and the doctors. It was like six doctors around my bed, looking down at me, shaking their head, and how lucky I was because, had it been a half inch over, I would have been dead. Right, and a quarter inch over, it would have been I'd have been paralyzed from the neck down. Mm. So they were just like, damn, this kid is really lucky. Um, so, and then, you know, I told my father, look, if I was going to that theater school, I wouldn't have got shot. Ah, oh, so, you, you threw that shit on him? Yeah, yes, sir. What, what, how did he react, you know, coming to the hospital? His words were, I wish we could handle it, you know, the way we can handle it. Right. You remember he had that gun in the crib. So he was definitely like, we could take it to the streets, but we're not going to do that. But unfortunately, they brought me in for a lineup and the kid that they thought did it had gotten a haircut. So they had... They lined the line. It was a Puerto Rican kid. They lined them all up, or a Spanish kid, and put these curly wigs on them, and they all looked what? like uh, Harpo. It was like a clown, right? Like, so I'm in the the lineup. Like I couldn't tell who, it right, was, right. Cause They all looked like a bunch of clowns with with uh, curly wigs on, which is crazy. So nothing ever happened. You never seen that kid again? No, I, I wouldn't recognize him if I saw him. Right. Yeah. So at that point, your father takes you out of the school, or yeah, yeah, he let me. So that was Park West, and then he let me uh, go to. Uh, Julia Richmond, because they had a, the Talent Unlimited program. Right. Lisa Lisa went there. Kadeem Hardison went there. Most Def came through there later on. So um, so Lisa Lisa was in, in your... Yeah, Lisa Lisa. Um, who else? Uh, Lisa Lisa, man. Lisa Lisa was the, probably the biggest one. Uh, but Lisa Lisa not, was the biggest one, oh, too. Uh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Lisa right, Lisa. You, you hooked up with Lisa Lisa? Uh, nah, nah. She said, ooh, baby, I think you love me from head to toe. So, so instantly your life changes, right? Instantly, yeah, yeah. You know, actually, one of the biggest things was there was this girl. Her name was Lisa. This like she was Puerto Rican, but she had that like dark caramel skin, like mm-hmm. like she was, mm-hmm. she was like yeah. But I loved that girl, man. And she used to never really give me play. When I got shot though, when I went back to school, she was like, she give like, me that yeah. sympathy, yeah. Nurse. Yeah, sympathy yeah, hug. Yeah, all that, all that. She put that but, then, but then I left the, the I left the school. So Lisa, right. you know who you are. If you hear this, <laughs> holler at me on Instagram. So, so you, st- <laughs> you now you're thriving. You're you're acting. You're singing. You're in this environment. Um, what happens professionally? How do you start? How does your life start moving professionally? Well, nah. Then I'm still just a teenager. Right. Um, I'm in high school, and uh, so. And Soon after, so I got, I got, I got uh, shot in January of '83. Right. 
by October of 83, my father kicked me out the house. I'm now 16. Why did he kick you out the he house, man? In, in bed with this girl. Uh, so that's whole summer that I got shot, right? I went to the, to Julie Richmond. It's been a hard knock jo- life that year. I, I joined. I, it was. So I joined <laughs> the theater program. They had a summer summer program. We did uh, um, we did um, West Side Story. Right. I played Tony. And there was a girl named Brenda that I met during the summer that had the crazy crush on. And uh, those crushes are special. Yo, they, in man? high school, especially with the name. No, yeah. Nothing Brenda. beats those those Brenda crushes. Brenda Duguay. I don't know where you are, girl, but you know what happened. <laughs> yeah, you may have a lot you, of you, these you, girls. You changing a lot of people's lives right now, yeah, man. Brenda, Brenda, <laughs> man. She and I, uh, I had a crush on her crazy through the summer, and um, and. Uh, this older dude that was from my neighborhood, he was short like Prince. Right. And we people thought he looked like Prince. And this dude was like 25 years old, but he was like 5'3". So he used to like, perpetrate the fraud yeah, like, he was a- <laughs> like he was young. And somehow Brenda was dating him. And I was mad. Like that whole, so like, you dating Tracy. Like that's whack. So by the fall, they broke up. Right. And she was in my theater program. And so we, um, uh, yeah, we, we got together and went to the crib and um, my father walked in and he was like, oh, hell no. Pack. He kicked you out though? Yeah, he was like, pack your shit and get the fuck out is what he said. Really? Pack your shit and get Wait the fuck minute, out. Wait a minute, you're 16? 16 years old. 16 years old. He said, pack your shit and get the fuck out. Right. Did you argue back? I mean, I know you I had was a- like, yeah, I was so used to getting beat. I literally said, don't kick me out. Why don't you beat me? Because there's six kids in my family, right? My brother- my two oldest sisters all got kicked out by the age of seventeen. Really, for different reasons. And my brother got his girl pregnant, and he she got so. There was oh, so always your pops is not playing around. Oh no, y'all get out. Get, get out the fuck house. out. But he later on he was like, I feel like I put enough in you that you would survive, and it was true. He right. taught us how to budget. He taught us how to cook, how to clean, how to shop. Like we we were domesticated kids. So in a so, sense, do you think he was? In his mind, doing you a service? I think or, he thought, well, I don't think he necessarily thought that because I can't imagine kicking out my 16-year-old. Right. But, um, but he, he, I don't know what the hell he was thinking. He, he had to think that he was at least teaching you a lesson. Yeah. I, yeah. I know you, you had to be like, where do I go? Right. So because my parents had split. And at, at that point, like, he didn't let me see my mother from 10 years old to 14. So, what? like, when my parents split, I didn't see my mother for, like, four years. Right. Cause he used to threaten her, like, "Don't you try to come around here and see these kids." What were your thought? What were your thoughts and your feelings towards your mom? And how's your mom well, doing I, anyway? Mom, man? She's good, thank you. She's good. Uh, uh, but I always knew that he was a little off, right. like, because he was just like, really, my mother to me was the greatest person in the world. So great spirit. He's I, talk, I, I know. Yeah, I know. Malik's yeah, mom. yeah. He used to talk shit about it, and I was like, "That's not true." Right. Like, whatever. But after so, the after yeah, the break. Yeah. yeah. Right. So yeah. She's unfit to be a mother. How could she leave her kids? I'm like, I would have left your ass too. Nigga, you crazy. If I could. Yeah, <laughs> like, yeah, yeah. mom is only smart. <laughs> so, um, but when he, when he said I had to leave, um, my boy Chuck, um, Chuck, God bless his dad, Chuck Burnside, um, I called him up and went to his house, stayed with him for a couple of days to track down my mother through right. some of our other friends. And I went up to the Bronx. I was in Harlem at the time. And I went back to the Bronx to live with her for a while. And uh, how was that? That was great. It was like night and day because my father was so repressive, and she was like always the one who was like anything you want to do, I'll support. So you want to be in theater, you want to study photography. She got me an internship with a photographer. Uh, 
I worked at the Negro Ensemble Company, right. uh, which is the preeminent theater company at the time. She got me that job. I was, you know, working in the office, selling subscriptions and going through um, uh, headshots of actors that were submitting their shit. My job was to throw them away. I did. I worked <laughs> in the theater doing concessions. Um, so your so so your life is growing. Yeah, Sam Jackson's doing plays at the time there. Felicia Rashad, Angela Bassett, wow. uh, Denzel had done uh, Soldier Story there. Right. Mm-hmm. I remember that. Um, and I started working right after Soldier Story at that place. So uh, Michael Peters, who directed Bad and uh, Beat It video, yes. like not Beat It, Bad yeah. Bad video, um, he used to come through there. So for me, I'm now 16. I'm I'm working at this theater which is what I always wanted to do, like just be in theater. Um, it's, 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 I was never in theater, but you know, I, I trained when I was young. It's, it's, it's a whole different world, man. Yeah. It's, it's a, it's, you know, it, it's, it's comforting. Yo, comforting. Yo, for me, theater was like, until this day, man, like, you know, to be in an empty playhouse and I can sit in the theater. Like I was in Amsterdam a few years ago. And uh, visiting these old, old theaters, man. And, like, I would just go in, nobody in there, and just sit and just close my eyes and just feel, like, the spirit of all the artists that have passed through in the last 200 years in this theater. Trapped in that wood. Yeah, man. Sacred, sacred, sacred for me. The older, the better. Um, So that's what I wanted to do, man. And Theater 4 was right up on 55th Street between 9th and 10th Avenue where the Negro Ensemble had the space right across from where Alvin Ailey School is now. And so for me, those days of just sitting there and dreaming about, like, life. And Sam Jacks, I met him when I was 16, and he was playing the Bones uh, in a play, playing an old, an old Negro spiritual kind of. Sam Jacks has been playing old cats for a long time. yeah, Like, for a long time. You know, let me ask you one question before we go to a break. I know, I know. You personally, and I, I know your mom's personally. Was this around the time that your mom started practicing Buddhism? Yeah, so what, that summer um, when I was doing West Side Story, there was this girl, Theodora, who lived across the street from the school. And uh, we broke for lunch, went to Theodora's house. And um, we walk in, and her mother had an altar set up. And I didn't know what that was. What is that? So, oh, my mother's a Buddhist. She chants, I'm your ring, I was like, oh, that's cool. Fast forward to, this, I would say like July of 83. Fast forward to October, my father kicks me out the house. I finally make my way to my mother's house. I go to my mother's house. She has the same altar. Wow. I was like, oh, this girl, I was just doing it. So, yeah, my mother had started practicing Buddhism. And with all six kids, um, four of us, my father kicked out. Were she, they at your mom's house now? Also? No, no. I, now, uh, four of us had got kicked out. My brother was there. I think my, one of my sisters was there. Another sister was living with a family friend. It was like our aunt. Um, but my mother used to chant for all her kids to return to her. So her testimony is like, I made this happen. Like, right. This is what I prayed about, and right. it happened. So, yeah, she had started practicing. And then that turned me on to it. Uh, when I was six, 15, 16, I, I decided I would give it a shot when she offered me a trip to uh, Hawaii. She ah. was like, I would like to go to Hawaii for this World Peace Conference. I was like, bet. She was like, you're going to have to chant. And then I started practicing. But that actually really helped save my life because not only was I into the chanting, I was into the reading. Right. I was reading a lot of books on um, 
you know, Eastern philosophy and um, Buddhism and, you know, just other ways of, of thinking. So that helped me. But but how did it save your life? It saved my life by giving me perspective. You know, that the biggest thing, like I was saying, was about learning how to take responsibility and not um, not blaming other people for your misfortune. So, you know, looking at everything that you say, that you think, that you do, um, you have to be mindful um, because, you know, people think karma is like, don't do that, that's bad karma. But they don't understand They're that. looking at it from a Judeo-Christian type of right, right, perspective, like, right? Like a sinful thing, but right. they don't understand that it's really just based on the law of causality. So everything that happens has a reaction, right? For every action is a reaction. So whatever goes up must come down. So you start saying to yourself, like I, I used to look at it in terms of like the planets never run into each other. You know, there's a certain order in the universe that things find a rhythm and they act accordingly. And when things are in accordance, they work in harmony. When they're in discord, they work in disharmony. So everything that I think, say, and do should work in accordance with harmony. And and so peaceful thoughts, loving thoughts. That's where the whole servant thing really kicked in for me as a teenager. Like, yo, so the secret to this life is... Let me just do the right thing. So, you know, gossiping, you know, trying to get over on people, being conniving, you know, lying, all those things really never take residence because you just know, like, you're really lying to yourself. I ain't never going to find out. And not saying that I'm perfect and not saying that I haven't lied. I've absolutely lied. But Because we're not perfect, but you're mindful. Right, right. Um, Did you take that back to when you got shot? Did you take... Absolutely. I mean, I, I took responsibility for like, okay, nobody told me to walk down that street. Nobody told me to stand in front of that bullet. Yes, the other kid pulled the trigger, but he has to take responsibility for what he did. So my part in that was showing up, choosing to walk down that street. But yo, crazy story about, so that, that I got shot on 50th Street between 8th and 9th Avenue. Right. Uh, a few years ago, I was doing a show called Alphas. And, um, I was doing Wendy Williams show, promoting it. I'm leaving her studio when she was on 54th Street, 55th Street, whatever, 54th, or whatever, 53rd. Um, driving down 9th Avenue, telling the story about getting shot on 50th Street. As the car approaches 50th Street, I'm pointing to the corner where the kid that told the other kid to shoot me had been standing. And as I'm telling my friend, like, yo, that's the street right where I got. And right as I, I point to it, there's a billboard with my picture on it ah. promoting the show Alphas right on the street where I got shot. Yo, that's crazy, man. And it was just one of those things that shut it down for, like, the rest of the, the ride home. Yeah, you was, was all like, contemplative, like, was like cause yo, and effect, yo, and this is not like, some coincidence. It's crazy. Yeah, yeah, definitely, like, man. Crazy, crazy, crazy. Because the craziest thing was, like, when I was real young, I used to wonder what it felt like to get shot. Right. Like, growing up in Harlem, first time I had a gun put to my head, I was 12. This kid Wallace that was in and out of jail, and I was messing around with his cousin, like you know, play fighting, whatever. He, I'm telling my cousin, so he went upstairs and told Wallace. Wallace comes down with a little 22, puts it to my head, and I'm 12. Like, shoot me, ah, uh, shoot me, like, because because of my father, I really had no fear. Right, like I would fight anybody or run if it made more sense. Right, because now studying, you know, martial arts, but I was like, I was willing to go. At anybody, even in, in when I was studying martial, I was a white belt fighting brown belts, fight like 
ready to fight everybody, you know. Um, which is so, which is which is an asset, but also man, you, you're your, pulling yeah, these, these events to your to, life. Yeah, but so and you know, but I also gave my teachers my autograph when I was 13. Yeah, I was like, I'm gonna be famous. So you should keep this. <laughs> I also wanted to bobsled and go to the Olympics, which is and crazy. So, so as I got older, I understood. Oh, right. So these are the things I called that to my you life manifested. That manifested absolutely. Yo, man, thank you for that. Listen, let's go to a, a quick break. Internet, you tuned into the Combat Jack Show. CombatJackShow.com. We got Malik Yoba in here. F your radio, F your podcast, and F your TV show. Cheer. Be right back. Internets, once again, this portion of the Combat Jack Show is brought to you by Bevel, the first and only shaving system designed specifically for coarse and curly hair and sensitive skin. Now, if you're a fan of the Combat Jack Show, you know why I fucks with Bevel so heavy. I fucks with Bevel because they don't bullshit you. You pay money to get a superior product, and that's what you get. Another reason why I fuck with Bevel so heavy is because it's been approved by an African-American dermatologist that, that, that Bevel reduces and prevents razor bumps. It's designed from the ground up to give you a smooth, bump-free shave. Finally, we fucks with Bevel because of Tristan Walker. Tristan Walker is the homie from Queens, New York. He's the golden child out in Silicon Valley. He's an entrepreneur. He saw the hole in this African-American grooming market, and he sold it. Stop playing around, shaving like a heathen walking around like you have no type of sense, education, or job in your life. Man up. Be a gentleman. Cop that bevel. Go to getbevel.com, G-E-T-B-E-V-E-L.com. Punch in promo code COMBAT, C-O-M-B-A-T. That's me, C-O-M-B-A-T for 20% off all goods and services. Once again, that's getbevel.com, promo code COMBAT, C-O-M-B-A-T. Stop shaving like you lost your goddamn mind, boy. And now back to the show. Internet, you tune into the Combat Jack Show, the CombatJackShow.com. We got Malik Yoba in here, and we walking down memory lane, man. Your story is amazing, B. You did Greenpeace? Um, I was at Greenpeace. You were at Greenpeace? Yeah. I was at, Saving whales? Like, what were you doing in Greenpeace? I was, um, I was so, um, I used to work for a group called the City Kids Foundation. So, um, well, actually, I'll back it up even more. So, how I got, um to even work you asked about the big break and i and i don't always tell the whole story but it goes back to you know um buddhism honestly so um in 1985 fourth of july weekend i was 17 years old and my mother told me you know hey you can go to hawaii if you start practicing buddhism it was all for this world peace culture festival so i left school i went to city ad school at the time right there in the west village and it was a work-study kind of situation. So I took six months off, became a bike messenger, was biking around New York, delivering packages, make, making money. That was a good time to be a bike it messenger. Was, man. I used to make, I don't know, two, three hundred dollars a week. Or, you know, and, and the city was so vibrant at the time. Yeah, man, man the 80s, bro. You miss Great. the 80s, man? Uh, well, I, st- I rode my bike here from Brooklyn, so I still ride right. like a bike messenger right, right. Like around the city. So. Just with different clothes yeah. on. Different did, clothes. Did you know the X-Men? Uh, they, I remember, yeah, yeah, That they yeah, were a bike yeah, messenger yeah, crew. Yeah, yeah. Anyway, I'm sorry, we, yeah, we digress. Digress, digress. But I was also a BMX, so that's a whole other story. Okay. So I ride, like, both of those, you know, bunny hop and all that shit. But um, went to Hawaii, went to this World Peace Culture Festival, and my life changed. Um, 20,000 people from around the world came in the name of peace. I was part of a 1,500-man human pyramid on roller skates. I hated, I hated so, those pyramids, man. But... 
and I was on the bottom. Ah, first level ready. Yeah. <laughs> so we went to. Um, what does that mean? Yeah, I'll tell you afterwards. I'll tell you afterwards. Well, maybe the listeners. No, no, I'll tell you afterwards, man. Well, he's talking about first level ready, meaning we used to build these human pyramids, pyramids, right? Stories. It's a, it's a Japanese tradition of 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 manifesting the concept of unity through physical action. So can you get 1,500 men? Many in body, one in mind. Right. Can you get 1,500 men to make one human pyramid? That was like at least that four first or level five was, stories. So I was, I was always bottom, second level. I was the bottom level. We had these <laughs> long-ass ladders that went back. I don't know how many men deep. And then we were yo, on roller skates. I got it. Yo, I <laughs> never thought. I will have an SGI conversation, conversation on the Combat Jack show. This is crazy. So, so I remember being on the bottom level on the, on with roller skates, like going down Kalakua Avenue, and like I ended up in the daily in, the, in like the cover of the newspaper, right? The World Tribune, like no, the local the news local newspaper, newspaper in Hawaii. Right, right. So this is all going back to the whole thing about one day I'm gonna be famous. Yeah. Keep autograph, right? So. I did that. I was on the cover of the paper. I was in like the SGI like brochure, the magazine, the the keepsake joint. And I never forget walking down the street in, near the beach in Waikiki one night, and these Japanese girls in their kimonos who didn't speak English, they were all part of the cultural festival, pointed to my NSA hat, which was the it was Nietzsche Social of America at the time. Yeah, she pointed to my hat. No words were exchanged. And I took my hat, handed it to her, and she dug in her kimono. She pulled out this little silk pouch to put your beads and your, your, your book in. And she just hand, we just had this exchange. She was a member of Ultima. Yeah, but from Japan. From Japan, right. But there was no, like, it was crazy. I'm right. walking down, points at my hat, I take my hat off, I hand it to her. She hands me the bead case, and I just keep walking. And it was, like, all in stride. You know what I mean? And I remember that moment was like, wow. World peace. Yeah. And I went back to New York, summer of 85, that August, and I was like, everybody I would run into, like, yo, you interested in world peace? Like, I've just seen the mountain. So you was like, doing I, mad dude, I was on the street, like, recruiting Street Chakabuku. Like, like, come, come to these meetings, and, like, so, I, and I, because I was reading all those books, I also had, like, all this information about Eastern thought, and, and, so people always thought I was older than I was anyway. I was 17 running around. They were like, how old are you, like 21? I was like, no. So I go back to school that fall, and I'm looking for a job. One day, I decide to go check out this place called City Kids Foundation. That, But two years passed, I finally say, you know what, let me go check out City Kids, which was down on Franklin Street uh, in, in, in Hudson, right. in, in Tribeca. And this was like 1986. 86, 80, something like that, 86, 87. And I just went down there and I met Laurie Meadoff, who started it. And I told her, look, I want to change the world. I want to build this place called the International Youth Culture Center. And it was all based on my trip to Hawaii. Right. I was like, yo, we can have world peace. I've seen it. And this is how we could do it. And at the time, I was in the BMX. So I was like, yo, kids around the world have bikes. So I'm going to build the whole center around a bike track. And, like, I'm going to build this BMX track, and there's going to be services for kids. And then I explained this vision. And she looks at me and says, how old are you? 19 at the time. And she says, we've been trying to build this place called the Manhattan Center, which was going to be this $100 million real estate project in Times Square yeah. that, that, that gave young people all these crazy uh, resources. Right. And so 
we bonded in that moment. And I started volunteering. And then she hired me. I turned 20 that fall. She hired me uh, to work at 13 high schools in New York. We had a grant um, to what's called the AIDP, Attendance Improvement Dropout Prevention. So you mentioned Bensonhurst. Mm-hmm. Um, I worked at Bensonhurst, um, Sheepshead Bay High School. I worked at John Adams High School. I worked at Curtis in Staten Island, uh, Low East Side Prep, uh, uh, Monroe in the Bronx, uh, Thomas Jefferson in East New York. Uh, Manhattan Center for Science and Math. Uh, So I would go around the city and work with young people in their schools and assess what they needed to stay in school and not drop out. We interview the faculty. We take kids on these retreats to the Poconos, and we work on these big, like, citywide, like, events with all the kids, these called City Kids Speak events. We did them at Carnegie Hall. You mentioned De Niro earlier. De Niro was one of the supporters and and a bunch of Demi Moore uh, when during her ghost days and Quincy Jones and so, so you're I, around these you're around the yeah, creme yeah, de la creme yeah. at the time but working with kids right like it was the dopest job ever like I did that from like 19 until I went to go do Cool Runnings but how I did my first film yes about the big break one summer the summer of 89 we ran out of money and. At this time, I was also working as a uh, waiter, first a busboy, then a waiter at Cafe Luxembourg on the Upper West Side. And um, uh, so I was making then, in the late 80s, easily $250, $300 a night as a busboy. No, no, as a waiter. Once I became a kitchen right. waiter, busboys that do about $70, $80 a night. So I was making like. Maybe, what were you doing with your money, Malik? Um. Living in New York City, man. Yeah. I had an apartment on a, on in Chelsea for seven hundred dollars. Crazy back then, right? I lived above Barney's for seven hundred. That's crazy. Seven hundred and sixteen dollars. <laughs> Six. Bro. It was seven dollars. Seventeenth right? Street between seven, six, and seven. Yeah. Uh, before that, I was living on the Low East Side. But actually, when I first started working as a waiter, I was still living in the Bronx. Right. Um, but and I moved downtown. And but long story short, I go into work one day and um, we we didn't get funding. And the older people that worked there were like, well, we got mortgages or kids, whatever, we have to leave. So I told Lori, I was like, I'll stay because I have this waiter job. So I would For, volunteer. So much fortune, man. Yeah. And so I walk into the office one day, and there's a sign on the wall that says $325 a day for a movie. And I was like, shit, I can do that. So I went and auditioned for that movie. It was called Seriously Fresh. Right. It was a half hour AIDS education film back in early days of AIDS there was a guy named John Hoffman who used to be the president of HBO who had a lot of friends that were dying of AIDS right. and so he decided to make these educational narratives around AIDS and so I went audition for it I got it um it's a funny story I remember getting the movie like on a Friday right and Malali skate park in the Bronx the BMX park I was still riding and so I do the ramps and and I'm all happy. I got this movie. I'm about to have rehearse on a Sunday. We start shooting on Monday. I go to Malali, jumping over a tabletop jump, do a little crossover, cross up in the air, hit this other kid in his bike, fall, break my arm. Damn. And I'm like, damn. So I go to the hospital. Big break, big break. Big break, big break. <laughs> I go to the hospital. <laughs> I show up to rehearsal the next day. The director's like, you're joking, right? What is that? I was like, nah, I broke my arm yesterday. Anyway, I end up doing the movie anyway. Did, did, 
with the cast? With the cast. And I had to play basketball in the movie, but I worked around it. Some special and, effects yeah. and shit. They nah, had a just, fake arm. I just, nah, just <laughs> use one arm. Right, I right. just use one arm. We worked, so it, special. we worked it in. But uh, So I did the movie, and um, on set, the dude who wrote the movie uh, was a guy named Jamal Joseph. And he came, and he was talking about how he had just gotten out of doing 10 years in Leavenworth for Damn. his affiliation with the Black Panther Party. Right. And I was like, yo, I run this youth program, and why don't you come down during Black History Month and uh, come talk to the kids about your involvement in the Panther Party when you were a kid. So he came down that February. Everybody loved him. We ended up hiring him to be artistic director of the repertory company. People like Isaiah Washington were in that mm. repertory company, Donald Faison, Lisa Carson, uh, Dulé Hill came through there. Lauren Hill came through wow. there. Um, like Dash Myhock was working. A lot of people were now like out there doing their thing. Um, and uh, but I was actually more interested in doing administrative and the right. teaching stuff. Right, right. And so they were all in the rep, but I wouldn't always perform with them. But we hired Jamal, and Jamal was like, "I'm gonna make you famous." And he was working on a film about you. Like, stop playing. Well, I believed it. Remember, right. I gave my teacher's autograph when I was 13. That's, that's true. So I was okay. like, okay. I always, since I was a kid, I honestly just always felt like my life matters and I'm going to do some big shit. Right. I just always knew that. And so um, he says he's going to make me famous, but he thought I was going to be in his film that he was trying to do about the Black Panther Party. Mm-hmm. But Jamal called me one day back in 91. He said, hey, man, they're doing this movie about the Jamaican bobsled team. Uh, they're doing auditions at SOB. So call this woman, Jackie Brown, go down. Tomorrow's the last day. Last day. So I went down on a Sunday. The last day. So that was the last person on the last day that they had seen. You? Me. And I walk in there. The second to last person, was it Jeffrey Wright? or No, Jeff I met at the screen test in L.A. Okay. Uh, I, I do my thing. I get up, and they're like, yo, um, you are... Uh, you know, a runner, and you guys just want to race, go. And I do some improv about how I taught Bob Marley how to play guitar and write songs. And without me, Bob wouldn't be nothing. And but it was all in Jamaican patois, and and I forgot about it. I left. Forgot. And you're a New Yorker, so I mean, yeah. most people in New York, or I was, I want to say most melanated people in New York got to know how to talk Jamaican. Or get some kind of connection. Yeah. So, a lot of my Jamaican patois, honestly, I picked up in Washington Square Park in the 80s where dudes <laughs> were selling weed yeah, yeah, yeah. in the park. And I used to ride my BMX bike in the park yeah, and hang out with all these guys. Nickelback, so, man. So, I went in and... Um, That's a horrible... Yeah. Jamaican. Well, I'm Italian, so yeah. I mean, I could do a Russian, I could do a Chinese. Yeah, yeah, your Russian is good. Do... You're never... Your Russian is good, Can't but your Jamaican sucks, Pete. Yeah, man. Yeah. Yeah. How about that? Yeah. <laughs> Stick to yeah, Russian, Pete. Yeah. So, so um, I go do my audition, forget about it, and um, two months later, I'm at Greenpeace at a, a meeting about saving the whales. That's and you're the, really serious about saving the whales? Well, it was the, the City Kids was all of the City Kids Foundation was all about young people using their voices creatively around social issues. Um, and so that's what we did. And um, so I was at Greenpeace at a meeting, and the phone rings. And it's like, uh, this is uh, whoever it was at the time, Tiffany, whatever the girl's name was. 
And well, you came in on this movie two months ago. I was like, how'd you find me? Oh, we called your office. They told us you were here. And so we need you to fly to L.A. tomorrow to screen test. Tomorrow. Tomorrow. And it was like 3 o'clock in the afternoon. They were like, can you fly to L.A. tomorrow to screen test for this movie that you auditioned for two months ago? And I was like, uh, I don't know. I got a job. I got to ask my boss. So I called Lori up. She's like, boy, you better go. Yeah. So I went to L.A. and I screen tested for Cool Running. And I got it. Um, Congratulations. In 91. And then thank you. And then Christmas Day of 91, or Christmas Eve of 91, Dawn Steele, God bless the dead. All these people have passed. So many people have passed in this journey. She was the first woman to run a studio. She ran Columbia Pictures. She was also the first person to ever do product placement in the movie. Uh, or, or not product, but, um, the promotional, like the toys that the, go the, with the movie. Right. Yeah, the tie-ins. Um, and she calls me and says, um, they're not going to make the movie. She's like, uh, It was originally Disney, right? Well, Disney did the movie. Originally, it was uh, Touched. It was Buena Vista. Okay. Um, that was originally doing it. And then they dropped it. And then um, she says, uh, but I'm going to get this movie. And I was like, all right. So I went I back. I got the role, but. I went back to my life. And I was, and I was, and, and that was one of the reasons why I wanted to pursue music. Right. Because you can control music. I used to take my guitar back to Washington Square Park. I'd play in the park. I'd play in the subways. I'd do little coffee shops in, in New York. In fact, the coffee shop on 17th yes, Street yes, and yes. Union Square back in the day. Sunday nights, they used to have this live music thing called the Coffee Grind. And I'd perform there with my little trio. And I was just going to be doing my music. And uh, eight months later, I got a call. And they're like, uh, the movie's back on. And there's a new director. And he'd like to see you. And I was like, I'm busy. Ah. I'm recording an album. I ain't got, like, y'all ain't going to pull me out to L.A. again and try. Hurry up and wait. And I was like. I was convinced to go again, and I went back. And it's what's crazy about that, like, I can't imagine that happening now. Like, I'm up for a movie, and the director falls out. <laughs> a year later, another director's right. like, we're still interested. That was, like, that was crazy. And I had an attitude. I was all indignant. <laughs> and I go out there, and um, the second go-round, uh, I got the movie the second time. And that's when I met... Um, uh, actually, I don't remember if it was the first time or second time, but a lot of people auditioned for that. Tupac. I, I didn't know Tupac. Tupac, Tupac auditioned. What role did he audition for? They, they had us doing all the roles. Yeah. Like, Leon was already locked in to right, be the right. Reese, and everybody else was like, they were mixing and matching. But Jeffrey Wright, Tupac, Omar Epps. And you've seen um, these actors. Yeah, but Tupac had just done, like, Juice. Right. And Pac was funny because he didn't want to take his nose ring out. They were like, can you take it? He was like, nah. Fuck that shit. That's that. That's yeah. why he didn't get the role. Yeah, it was, I, Allegedly, I that, yeah. right? But I remember meeting Jeff, and I was like, "Yo, that actor is dope." Like, I read somewhere that you were a little bit intimidated by. No, okay, no, nah, you weren't intimidated no. by Jeff. I'm not intimidated by actors. Okay, but I was. <laughs> I, I, I understand I, that. I, I was. Um, I was. Um, I admired it. Right. I admired it, and it's a healthy admiration. Like, oh, he's good. Like, game recognizes game, so you know when you're dealing with an actor that. You know, that knows his shit. That knows his shit. Right. So, yeah, yeah, yeah. Love I mean, that movie, man. Yeah. Love I mean, that yeah, movie. Yeah, Yul yeah. Brenner, right? Uh, yes, sir. Yul yes, Brenner. Yeah, man. Yeah, I mean, that was a big man. movie, too, man. A big thing, that, man. I think like 65 million, I think. Oh, one on, why a blood clot? So, how did that change? 100. Million. Million. Well, hold on, hold on, hold on. Malik, 
you said earlier that you grew up wanting to be a bobsled. So what's crazy about that? There. Yeah, it's a couple of little cool facts. The song, so like enough people say, no, they can't believe Jamaica. We have a bobsled team. We are the one Doris and the one Junior. You'll bring out and the man Sanka. Passes out of wool, a Jamaican sprinter. You wrote, wrote that, it. right? I wrote that. Yeah. Let me write that, man. So I wrote that. And so in my audition, when, when they were like, uh, my screen test, they were like, all right, you guys just want to race, celebrate. I pulled that song out that I had already written. Yeah, already had it. And uh, they loved it. And then it ended up in the movie and uh, ended up getting a record deal with Columbia. Which is as crazy. As a result of that. Um, and ended up on the soundtrack. Then ended up doing So, so you're getting, you getting money now. Oh yeah, yeah. Start, you're, you're getting you're starting getting money right now. How was it with John Candy, man? John Candy was great, man. Um, he was great, man. He was a sweet, sweet, sweet man. Um, uh, one of my favorite moments. First hockey game professional was with John Candy. Okay, Calgary Flames took us to see that. He was he promised to take us salmon fishing. Unfortunately, he died after the movie. Right after the movie, right? Yeah. Uh, he did one more movie, Wagon's East, right okay. after that and died. But um, kind man, like invite. Had a chef cook us dinner, you know, taught you how to be a classy professional. Because right. Candy at the time, he had really blown up. He was like 350 pounds at the time, and people were shitting on him. Like, I remember when the movie came out, the Canadian newspaper was like, we can't understand what Candy's going to be in this movie. Either he's going to be the bobsled or the mountain. Uh. Like, just make this killing him because his weight. But he was really gracious and, you know, made these CDs and collected um, music for each one of us and handed us, like, and I think of your character, I think of this, and gave wow. each one. And and just, you know, say things like, make every scene count. You know, <laughs> we're only as strong as the person seen with you. And so those kind of classy ways of being gracious and, and respectful and generous. Yeah. I remember growing up watching Second City TV, which to me was the funniest shit I've ever seen. How do you keep a straight face around somebody that's as funny as Candy, man? But in that movie, you know, he was playing the straight man, right? Right, because... The movie, the first time they were doing it, they were going to do it as a drama. And um, uh, I think it was not Ed Harris. I think it might have even been Ed Harris who they wanted to be the coach. And then when they went with Candy, it took a whole new yeah. new, new direction. But, um, yeah, it was just, you know, I was I was just happy to be there. To your point about wanting the bobsled, I remember we were in Calgary and it was the top of the bobsled run. I got my Jamaican bobsled uniform on. I'm looking around. I'm like, yo, I'm at the Olympics. I always wanted to go to the Olympics and I always wanted to bobsled. Once again, visualization. Yeah, man. And it manifested. I was like, oh, shit. That's crazy, like, man. Here I am. Bobsled. At the, at the at Olympics. Olympics. At yeah. the real Olympics. At the real place where they did the Calgary Olympics yeah. in 1988. What's crazy to me is a lot of your visions have become reality. Yeah. But what's even more dope to me is you tell me about how John Candy was coaching or teaching or winning gems. And then we look now and what you were doing on Empire with these young kids. Yeah, you got to, you got to, you got to teach, man. Plus, I'm, I just naturally have the spirit of a teacher. Like, um, you know, I started young, and I believe that you have to, man. I mean, you have to, you have to. How do you transition? I mean, I know a lot of things. I mean, we could talk here for for, for, for hours, man. How do you jump into uh, New York Undercover? Because that was big. So New York Undercover, um, what's crazy about that um, is... Uh, so I leave, you know, I go off from City Kids Foundation to do this movie, Cool Runnings. And what's crazy is the night before I went to go do the movie, Cool Runnings, first of all, I left January 17th, 1993, almost 10 years to the day that I got shot. Yeah. 
and my plane got delayed in Dallas, and I arrived in, arrived in Calgary on January 18, 1993, 10 years to the day. And and I you go, know this. Like you're, yeah, and I'm aware. Like, aware. oh, shit, 10 right. years ago I got shot, and here I am doing this movie. And like I used to think about getting shot, I got shot. I think about uh, bobsledding, now I'm bobsledding. And so I'm aware that these things are manifesting. At that time, I'm reading books like Seed of the Soul. I'm right. reading books like Conversations with God, and I'm reading, you know, Seven Spiritual Laws of Success. and and understanding how all these things work together in my early 20s, right? And so um, I do the movie um, in January to March of 93. It comes out the fall of 93, like September, October. Between then and March, in five months, I booked two other two Miramax films, um, an AT&T commercial, an episode of Law and Order. I did Dougie Doug's show, um, Where I Live. And while I'm doing Law and Order, I get a call to audition for Cool Runnings. I mean, for New York Undercover. Right. And I'm literally shooting the episode uh, over in Chelsea Piers. And we're doing a scene. I break for lunch. I go into a, a little office. And I remember Andre Harrell was in the office. That's right, because that was his yeah, baby yeah, in a yeah. sense, well, right? Well, the show had come to Andre. He fell in his lap, but he wasn't a TV guy. Right. But he had his deal at Universal with Uptown Records. The show was originally called Uptown Undercover. Right. And they originally wanted two black dudes. And then they were like, nah, we can't do that because the two black too strong for 1994. Of course. And so let's go black and Latino because they already did black and white with Miami Vice. Right. So they went black and Latino. And um, before I go in the room, I hear Andre's voice saying, "Yeah, you know Malik Yoba is the low man on the totem pole." And I don't know what Word? The, I don't know what the hell that Andre meant. was talking shit to you. I don't know what I'm it talking meant. about you. Right? I don't know what it meant, yeah, right. but he was right. Like, who was I? I had done a couple of movies and like no a one Disney knew, movie. No yeah. one who knew who the hell I was. Right. But um, they really and even that that Law and Order role because uh, you asked about the big break and and I always make the connection between my life of service. And how that service served me later on. Right. So when I auditioned for, for Law and Order, I originally went in for the role of this like thug, and because I played the tough guy in Cool Runnings, everything after right after that was always like the tough guy. I did these two movies with Wayne Wang and, and John Carlos Esposito and Harvey Keitel and all these people, uh, William Hurt, and I played like a thug. What, what movie? Then, what movie was uh, that? Smoke. Okay. The movie Smoke. And then we did Blue in the Face, which was all improv. Um, Harold Pirino was in that. Um, and so I go in to, um, uh, um, I do the, the, the um, to, to audition for New York Undercover. Andre makes that comment. Um, and I go lay it down and I get the role. But it was the same person that had cast Cool Runnings that cast uh, New York Undercover. Right. And so, um, yeah, and so it just always goes back to, like, oh, what I was about to say is the girl that was casting Cool Running, uh, Law and Order, Gabrielle, she saw me come in for the role of the thug, and she was like, you know what? You should read this other part. And the other part was basically, if you ever saw that old-school episode of Law and Order that I did, I was playing a baseball player who accidentally kills his father 
people some gambling debt. It was right. loosely based on Michael Jordan. Michael Jordan, right. And so because I played a bigger role, they saw more range. And so, um, but Jackie already knew, like, I think this kid could be J.C. Williams. And uh, so she was convinced that that would be the case. And so that's how uh, New York Undercover happened. And then next thing I know, my whole life changed. Did you know that show was going to be that big, man? Hell no. I didn't know what the hell I was doing. I mean, I didn't know. Nah, man. I was just, like, happy to, like, book a TV series, you know. And uh, I thought it was cool. But, no, we didn't know. How did it change your life? Oh, man. Like, 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 did shit spiral a little bit? Oh, yeah, yeah. I remember Jackie Brown saying, um, there's no such thing as one to ten. One to nine, you go zero to ten. Zero to ten. And New York Undercover was that kind of thing. I mean, we shot spring of 94. Right. Show premiered fall of 94. We shot all over New York City, and at that time, I had... Cool Runnings as a credit. Some people had seen it, but Michael DiLorenzo had done Fame and head of the class, so we'd be shooting around and people would see, oh, that's that kid from Fame. That show was so revolutionary. Yeah. On so many, I mean, just yeah. the, like you were saying earlier, the fashion. Like, y'all tapped into the Tommy Hill and the Walkerwear yeah. and, and, and the Naughty and the whole nine. No, and, and that, Russell was in the black, in the red with Fat Farm. Russell Simmons. Yes. Right. Fat Farm was, he was in the red. money. Right. And then I used to wear that shit on New York Undercover. <laughs> he ended up in the black because well, well, of New York Undercover. One day, Dana Hill, who used to work for him, shows up at the set with a Bulgari watch. Like, yo, Merry Christmas. I didn't know anything about product placement. Right. I Like, if you were black, I was wearing your shit. Right. Like, bad boy. I remember Puff like, yo, man, thank you for wearing my shit. I was like, of course, man. Walk away, around. Any young black Nietzsche, if you were a designer, I was, was cross color it. still around at the time. Uh, they were just yeah, kind yeah. of fading. But did Fubu make it in? Or Fubu, Fubu made it in. Every, every any designer at that time, I would wear your joint because I just felt like we got a free platform to promote other people's shit. ACA, remember the, the, the yeah, the, yeah, like. I he said ACA. No, ACA. Remember ACA? No, I know. I'm yeah. just saying you're bringing no, me I back. Ju- I just seen a dude the other day in Brooklyn with, oh, a, with, no. a, with a brand new. new one. A, they, <laughs> they're back. They're fucking back. Um, and then the whole music thing, man. Yeah. Like, like whose idea was it to, like, have the segments with the, the music and the stars? And I don't know where that came from, but I, I would imagine with Andre with Uptown. That probably generated there, but I don't, I don't remember. That's, that shit is amazing, man. And, yeah, it's crazy. And, and, and like I said, the power of black Hollywood in the 90s, man. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I, I just wonder what happened, man. Well, it went out to the Englishman. It went to the now, Englishman, right? Black, that's what I do, man. What's, what's Iconic, man? Tell us about Iconic, iconic 32, 32, man. Is, um, so um, uh, back in uh, December of 2013, I was working on a, reality show funny enough that was all about these kids refurbishing cars and selling them off for scholarships so back to helping people right everything i do is kind of rooted in that and uh uh my girl uh my home girl jay love called around uh introduced me to this cat sergio morales and uh he had just left his job a month earlier at, at weber shanwick at a, a, a pr marketing firm he's a creative director we started talking and he said that um, he, you know, had this idea for a firm that, you know, um, would do branding. And and I was like, oh, I'm doing that. I just had done 
the the um web web uh, web series uh, based on my film what's on the heart to man that Rhonda Cowan when she was at BET uh, she gave me that opportunity to come up with something for BET.com and I came up with a web series and that got me into brand and entertainment and Gillette was a sponsor and then as a result of that I started doing stuff for United Negro College Fund and then um, American Heart uh, uh, American so- Cancer Society um, AARP so I started like developing web content and um i met sergio and uh he's he told me he wanted to start this firm and i was like yo man i've been wanting to do my own and you know brand entertainment firm and work with you know because i understood strategy and marketing and this is a result of my days at city kids and my days you know back in the day at city kids we had a, a saturday morning tv show that i helped pitch right, that I show yeah, with the that. muppets and I was a co- Jim Henson, right? With the Hensons. I was a co-musical director for that. Uh, that's what Donald Faison was on that. Dulé Hill was on that that's show. That's crazy. Um, and so um, I, I understood a lot about the business side of things. And so Serge and I met the next day for breakfast, and we've been rocking ever since. It's been 15 months. So Iconic 32 is, um, he came up with the name, um, which is essentially, you know, we help companies or individuals reach iconic status or maintain their status. The 32 was a nod to his favorite basketball player in high school, which is Magic, Magic Johnson. Johnson. Exactly. And so simply iconic 32 does branding and strategy work for companies, um, helping them, uh, uh, look at their corporate responsibility platform. We, we promote social good through pop culture. So using film, television, art, music, uh, sports, so we do that, and we're building out um, an e-commerce platform. Um, so if you go to iconic32.com, you can see some of our fashion products. I like right the sweatshirts. Now. I like the, the sweats, hoodies. Yeah, the hoodies, sweatshirts. Um, portions of our proceeds support the Common Ground Foundation, Commons Foundation. That happened because I was hosting Commons Gala in Chicago uh, last year, and I loved what he was doing around the arts education piece and the sort of holistic approach to watching or uh, taking these young people from like elementary and middle school all the way through college. And I said, you know what, let's partner and make sure that when we sell proceeds of, you know, we can get support you. Did a similar thing with Anquan Bolden. I've played in his golf tournament. I love what he's doing in his community. You're nice at golf, uh, man? I used to be real nice, but I don't play as much right. anymore. So um, I don't even talk shit anymore, <laughs> but I used to. I used to let my game talk. For right, me, right, right, right. I don't really have it. You anymore. just go hang out on Top Golf now. Yeah, I, I hardly even do that, man. But I, there's some tor- Anquan's tournaments coming up next month, and some other ones. I'll, I'll go down and just enjoy them. But um, so um, like the screening we did last night for Empire benefiting the Prison yes, to yes, College Pipeline program. So we just know that in this space of urban culture, in this space of pop culture, you can be in the give a fuck business in in a different kind of way. You can. You can make caring cool. I've know? always believed that, man. Yeah, absolutely. And, and and I think that also speaks, we're going to wrap this up, but I think that speaks to your longevity. I mean, it's not longevity, but it is longevity. Yeah. Because a lot of people still aren't around. You know, people that, well, you know, where is Dougie, Doug, man? Doug, Doug actually, the, the light. And I'm not, I'm not trying no, to shit Doug, on him, but. No, no, not at all. Doug, Doug, you know, he, he's he been doing a little stuff here and there, but it's like the Andre 3000, you know, like, you know, I, I hated all the tension, so I ran from it. That, that that lyric, yeah. you know what I mean? Yeah, yeah. And I'm sorry with T.I. Right. Like, that's his, that's that realness. Like, yo, pop, staying, first of all, staying relevant in pop culture is 
crazy. And it's exhausting. It's, right? it's exhausting, bro. Right. And the fame monster is real. Yeah. Anonymity is a beautiful thing. You it lose is. it and you can lose your mind. And so for me, I think that the difference maker has been I've always been rooted in service. One of the best things, best moments I've had in, in a long time was I was leaving the Meredith Vieira show recently. And while I was doing the interview, her, she was like, you know what? My daughter was so excited that you were coming on the show. She's coming out of college. She's got a big job coming up. It's a marketing firm. But she went online. She researched your company. She loves what you guys are doing. She'd love to work with you. And I was like, all right, have her contact me saying, you know, blah, blah, contact. I'm leaving 30 Rock. I walk downstairs. I hear somebody go, hey, Mr. Yoba. Turn around. It's Al Sharpton. Hmm. And Sharpton's like, yo. Actually, he didn't say yo. Maybe he didn't say yo. Maybe he didn't say yo. Al Sharpton said yo. Yeah, but he was like, <laughs> man, I just had Lee Daniels and, and Danny Strong on my show. And I told him, um, y'all don't know who y'all have on your show. He was like, y'all need to stand behind Malik. He was like, that boy has been out there for years. For 30 years I've known him. He's been on the front line with the same message since he was a kid. He's going on and on and on, bigging me up around my community work. He had no idea what was happening with my character on right, the show. Right, right, right. He just felt. He, he Which is kind of crazy. Tell. It was crazy. So I'm listening to him, and I'm like, word, you said that? And he goes, yeah, I told him. He's like, I don't know y'all, but I know him. Right, right. And he's been out. <laughs> y'all are new on the scene. Right, right. And I was like, damn. And I said, well, let me tell you something. And I told him what happened with the character. He was like, ah, oh, no. Nah. He didn't start campaigning, did he? Nah. nah don't, nah. don't get Al Sharpton. Nah, but I'm doing on the set of, on the set of Empire, Nah, B. but I'm doing his show. Uh, his show airs the same time that you guys released this. Nice. So I'm doing Politics Nation. and But it was just one of those moments. And I told him, I was like, you know, this guy right now. Because you have no idea. Because it's been hard, man. Right. I knew that my character got killed a week after the show premiere right two days before it got picked up for a second season right so for two months i'm walking around holding while the in. whole world is like yo congratulations yo i'm so happy for you people coming out the woodwork literally from malaysia from australia from new zealand from africa from all over the world like yo i'm loving this show i'm so happy blah 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 and i'm like i'm not even y'all don't I, even know i can't even y'all don't even know I couldn't even enjoy the success. It's like a marriage of like getting divorced yeah. before you even fucking celebrate. Yeah, 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 exactly. But at the same time, are, are are new roles like flying in now? Um, I won't say new roles are flying in. Um, honestly, bro, like it's been twenty six years since I did my first movie, and you know, all of us that started back then, you're like, yeah, Yo, you know, I'll win an Oscar by now, and I'd have done this and that, and this experience, I really feel like God has been like, all right, so, and it's interesting because I, I mentioned God, we talked about Buddhism, but my journey has brought me to Christianity. And yeah. in, in my, like, 33, I had on the road with Dave Todd with those plays, I had a literal come to Jesus moment where the world stopped. Like, literally, we're doing a play. I'm at the Beacon Theater, show sold out. There's um, Black walk. Jesus or white Jesus? Uh, I've been to Ethiopia. I've okay. been to to Lali Bella. I've seen the Black Jesuses on the wall built in like the 11th century in those churches. So I know about a long time ago yes, what things look like, right? Because I've seen it <laughs> yes, in sir. ancient places. Um, but I had a moment where there's three conversations going on in the audience, and for 12 weeks I've been asking Dave, like, "Yo, 
can you please teach people about the protocol of theater? Please stop yelling at the stage. Stop talking to me. Stop acting like you in your living room, like there's etiquette. And so three conversations are going on in the theater. And I I, I turned to the audience. I was like, you know what? We can't do the show like this. And I'm going to go backstage. I'm going to drop the curtain. We're going to start all over again. And hopefully y'all let us do it the way it's supposed to happen. And I went back, and I've been on tour with all these quote-unquote Christians that were backstabbing and gossiping. And, and so it was kind of like a joke. Right. I said, you know, and I wouldn't let Dave call it a gospel play. I was like, you have to call it an inspirational play because I'm not Christian. But I went backstage, and I was like, Jesus, if you're real, I need to see your face right now. I need to go on the stage and hear absolute quiet. If there's absolute quiet, I will follow you anywhere. I went on stage and hear a pin drop for the first act. And on that tour, I had some really deep experiences in the spirit and subsequent to that. And so for me, um, with this particular show, I I said at the very beginning, what felt like a reunion became a funeral um, because there's so many pieces of it that seem to align perfectly, right? Leah Daniels, Butler, who's Lee Daniels' sister, was on the casting team that cast me in Cool Runnings 22 years ago. And so she, I ran into her last year while I was doing a film in L.A. And there was a young actor on the film, Giovanni Watson, that I thought would make a perfect kid of Taraji and Terrence. I read Empire, and I read for the Terrence role, right? I, I read the script first, and agents said, well, we need a name. And so I was like, really, they playing yeah. that, that game, right? We need a name. And it's a trip because, of course, I know Terrence from, it was Hustle and Flow that changed his whole life. Exactly. And we had dinner right before he did Hustle and Flow. And he was like, yo, I'm about to do these little. I'm going to do yeah, these little, this little you know, Hustle these little, and Flow. Nah, he, didn't even, he was like, I'm about to go do these little independent movies. As soon as they're done, I'm retiring. I'm out of this. Crash and Hustle and Flow. Bro. Wow, yeah. Remember he got back paid six grand. Back to for doing, six grand. For doing Hustle and Flow changed his life. Crazy. So that's the, the crazy nature of our business. Right. And all of a sudden, Terrence is a name, right? And so everything I've done for 20-some years, I'm not a name. And Lee, to his credit, when he even had me come in the room for Empire, he was like, yo, can I just apologize to you right now? He's like, I, I'm sorry I even have to put you through this. Like, I know who you are. I know your name. Blah, blah, blah. You, you are a name to me. And at the end of that moment, he was like, I'm testing you for this, man. And ultimately, he was like, this is your role if you right. want it. But his sister, Leah, was part of the original crew right. that cast me in Cool Running. So here I am coming full circle. full circle. So the whole time it was like full circle, full circle. I got Iconic 32 now. So we can really do a lot of the marketing and the strategy around the social good that all this show can be. And I thought, like, this is the perfect scenario, the perfect storm. All the like, But the whole time, like I said, something just didn't feel right for me because it felt like there's a level of um, opportunity and honor that comes with when, when you feel like the, the, the entities involved are really creating the moments for you to share your gifts fully. Right. That never happened. Right. Right. And so, but in spite of that, I was like, let me still do all these other things. And, offer myself i told lee from jump like i will be your confidant i've been down this road many times this is your first foray into television whatever you need like 
let me be like lean on me like and and i don't i don't necessarily want to be the the full star i'm down for a good ensemble at this point in my life i have kids i have other responsibilities pay me my money let me do my work let me contribute but i don't need to be number one right right? happy doing that um but it didn't work out that way right so it was crazy because it's like of all the people um, not that I want anyone to lose their job, but really, this dude, like <laughs> really, like so you're not. It's not being written for you, and you can't really contribute fully, and everyone knows it, and right. everyone's looking at you like, yo, really, why? Why is he just? Why? Why y'all sitting on? Why you having me? Why y'all sitting on a panther right yeah, there? Yeah, yeah. It's like I felt like Marshawn Lynch in the Super Bowl. Really, we on the one yard line, and you, don't you hand them the ball? Yeah, you really? Okay, so fine. So what's happened for me, um, this this whole experience, especially because it's been so culturally successful, um, it's really made me look at how I want to move forward right. in my life. So Iconic 32 has created amazing opportunities. We're in the app space. There's, and I, I, I'll send it to you guys later. If you Google Malik Yoba Zinapp, Z-I-N-N-A-P-P, it's the first app that is you don't have to download from any app store, lives in the cloud. It's a black-owned technology company that's producing this thing. Um, it's a platform to let you aggregate all of your um, all of your online presence. So anything you have, all the content you want to put, Twitter, all Instagram, your Facebook. all in one spot. So you have to send separate links for everything. It's searchable on Google, like I said. Um, so it's an amazing piece of technology that works across every platform. So. We're helping to bring that to market. We're developing uh, a couple of TV shows, some in the reality space, some digital stuff. Um, we've got a sneaker collaboration going on. Okay. We've got... Um, Wait, can you tell us what? Uh, it was a young woman, J.J. Uh, Gray is the, is the line. She's a, she's a young... Uh, she's only been in business less than a year, but she wants to... Uh, she has the same DNA as us. Like, I want to help people. I want to save the world. I want to... So she came to us um, uh, through Kat, a friend of ours, um, M.M. Rick out of Queens. And so we're doing a collaboration with her. Um, we, we have huge opportunities across a bunch of industries doing exactly what I've done since the days of City Kids. So in some ways, it's like I feel like I'm going back to that meeting I was at at Greenpeace right. and going back to where I started. But in a with a lot more power, a lot more influence, a lot a more, lot more awareness, awareness, right. and because the end of the day, the people that I admire the most are not actors. Because actors, I do admire, but Richard Branson's of the world, the Jack yes. Welch's of the world, the you know any self-made person that has had a dream and has built it from the ground up into something that really can be of great service to the world. That's always been the goal. It's not been I want to be the most famous actor in the world. I'll take it. Um, I love acting, but um, it's just one of the things that I do. So are a lot of roles coming my way right now. I mean, this is all just happening, right, in right. the last few weeks. But um, What a fucking whirlwind, man. It, it's, dude, it's crazy. But, you know, the show we're developing, which is a drama, which I think is tight, um, and we'll pitch it for next season. But um, Good luck with that, man. Yeah, yeah. And if it's the right thing to do, I'll do it. But um, I'm enjoying building a business. And, uh, you know, to me, we joke we're like iconic 32 will be like google but not google because it's just it's proven itself to to be smart 
the, the, the thing that is is most fascinating is when you create a culture that people respond to. Like we put images out, we put words out, we've done an event, we did a release party with Common at a pop up here in Soho with a sneaker company, Bucket Feet. It was a collaboration, it was part like art auction, part listening party, part like community gathering and, and that's how we do things. You know, we did an event during All Star Weekend where some of the art some amazing artists like Loban Hamilton, um Hande Wiley that yes. his art is on Empire. Yeah. Took it off all over, show. all over Empire. Yeah, but we didn't do it work with Candy, but right. we work it with Loban. I mean, I see this amazing work on the set, and I'm like, yo, who is this dude? That's you know, fun. he has a, a an exhibit right now. Oh, the Brooklyn Candy does. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. Um, but we were able to auction off some of the artwork and and provide um, uh, resources for a group called uh, uh, Smile Design Gallery. We did a collaboration with a group called Athletes for Art and uh, Renaissance Store. So. I got my hands on a lot of things. Um, you stay busy, man. My last doing. question, man. What, what's been your favorite role? Um, all, all everything you've done, man. I know um, you, 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 you. There's been a few. You did Martin Luther King. King was an amazing honor. You know, it's funny because when I saw Selma, there's been, I think David's probably the 15th or 16th person to play King in, right. since he died. Because I, I think when I did the Lifetime movie, I was like number 13. The, the movie was uh, a Betty, Betty and Coretta. Coretta. Yeah. Betty and Coretta. That was the greatest honor. Right. Like being able to, to play King and it was a small role, but I spent a lot of time getting it right. And acting with with with, with um, Angela Bassett, Angela Bassett yeah, yeah. who you had seen when I was sixteen. That, which yeah, is crazy. Yeah. Like how was that, man? Oh man, there's so many, you know, I got so many of those stories. You stay one of the craziest stories like that is Felicia Rashad. Um, when I was sixteen years These old. These are all beautiful. Like really you're talking about some beautiful women. Yeah, 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 yeah. I've I've had the pleasure of working with some beautiful women, but 16 years old, Felicia Rashad, between a matinee and evening performance at Negro Ensemble Company. She's in her dressing room. Um, I walk up to the door. I'm to her left. She's facing the mirror. She's putting her makeup on. And I'm asking her all these questions about making it as an actor and doing this in the world, blah, blah, blah. 16 years later, I'm 32. I'm doing a show called Bull. She's playing my mom. And I was producing an event called the Great American Father's Day Celebration at the House of Blues in L.A. And it was all about fathers um, performing and celebrating their children. So I had, like, Aaron Neville play with his kids, right. Jonathan Butler with his kids, and Sinbad at the time. And I asked Debbie Allen, to, uh, who directed one half of the season finale of Empire of this season, I asked Debbie to co-direct that show with me. So Felicia said, oh, we're working on Old Settler down at this theater, at this uh, t uh, studio. Why don't you come down and meet me at, on stage? And when I get there, they're like, she's in her dressing room. And I go to her dressing room, and she's sitting in the mirror, putting her makeup on, and I'm standing to her left, the exact same scenario that I was at 16 years earlier with her. That's crazy, Like, man. crazy, crazy, That's crazy, crazy, like, full circle moment. Yeah. So, um... Favorite role, man. Um, I always go back. I mean, you know, Martin Luther King was a great one, but I think J.C. Williams doing New York Undercover because I was, I was 26. Um, it was my first TV series shot in New York, a shot in Harlem. I got to represent young black men in a way that I hadn't seen them represented in film or TV. And 
so often I would see things, man, I'd be like, yo, that ain't, that ain't how you do it. Like, nah. And you're a New Yorker. And I'm you're a New, New Yorker. Yorker. You're not so some cat me, from L.A. No, or from, exactly. from, like, from, from like, Colorado that's here trying to I perperpetrate lot, the fraud. I took a lot of pride in that, man. So like, you were correcting, like, like, like yo, Harlem cats t- don't talk like, like that. Yeah, everything. Brooklyn like, cats don't. Yeah. Back to, like, yo, the patent leather Adidas, like, that was, that I wanted when I was in high school that I didn't have. It was when I played J.C. Williams, I wore them. I remember Michael D. Lorenzo was like, yo, what are you doing? I was like, shut up. You don't know. Like, people who know, know no. what's up with this. Right, right, the right, Tims, right. the toothpick, the army jackets, all of that was, a, like, great pride. And I was a young father. Um, of the, a lot of roles that I've liked. Um, uh, and uh, and that's one of the most unfortunate things about Empire for me. Um, I can't say that Vernon Turner was one of my favorite roles. Right. It would have been only because it was, it, you, you fighting just to, like, can I be the real dude? Like right. in my head, it was it was the perfect setup, but the execution of it was like, like wartime or peacetime consigliere. Both. Both. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, definitely. You know what I mean? Yeah. You know, yeah. One more question, man. Well, I got two more. Um, advice to young actors right now in 2015. While you wait and keep creating, man. Like learn to write, learn to direct, learn to produce, learn to raise money, learn to market, learn the whole game. Do with them kids was that money and violence and my boys that did um, the block. Um, create your own, create your own, man. Yeah. And the technology is here. The technology is here, here, man. There's no excuse. But learn how to really do it. Yeah. Like be a cinephile. Like study like the films that you like. Look at. Uh, you know, who was the director of photography, look up their work, Learn your go on IMDb, understand what lenses do, different formats. Um, you know, there's, 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 there's rules to this. Yeah. Learn the craft. Um, but that's it, man. I, I would tell people just keep keep creating, man. And, you know, to be an actor means that you're sitting around waiting on a job. And that's whack. Yeah. Like, that, <laughs> I, I, that's, that's always been whack. That's always been whack, yeah. man. So that, that's what I would say, man. And, and I love, man, taking it up to the, to, to, to the present, man, with social media. I love that you don't play on social media, man. I, I'm talking about that situation that happened, I think it was like a year ago, man, where, it was, where somebody was shitting on you and you, were, you, oh, you invited yeah. them to your privates, man. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> SMD? You know, I try, SMD somebody? I, 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 I try to be a good, a good man of faith, but I'm human, and, and people, people will go in, and I, I've learned to – to not do that now. Now I'm better. Temper- you, were, were you, well, were you, no, were you no, doing- that particular person, right? She was going hard for a while on you. So, so Jihad. That, yes. Like how long has she been going? She, it was a while. Right. Like and and every time you look in your timeline, it's like this chick again. Yo, yo, like <laughs> don't think that you have the right just to say what you want, right? Because it's social media. Yeah. Very rarely do I get those people, but she caught me on a bad day. And I hadn't learned how to block somebody on Twitter yet. Because ah, had I learned how to block, I would have block, just blocked it. And I would have kept it. That moving. mute. First you mute them. Then yeah, you block yeah, them. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but she kept going, talking trash. And I was like, yo, you're going to get it. And then, I just, and then I learned how to block her after. I was a little salty. <laughs> but, you know, doing this corporate work and, you know, you want to keep a good image. Yes, 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 just, yes. You know, I want to continue to evolve and, and, and rise above these things. But. Every now and then, people just think you can still can, get it. Yeah, they can. They think they can. Just, it's crazy. It's yeah. crazy. You're a good guy, so I think once a week, a good guy got to be an asshole. 
Right. I, I, I feel that way because like there was nobody to respect you. Yeah. Listen, man, where can where can our, our, our audience find you, man? Uh, definitely, uh, you should follow on social media. So obviously, at Malik Yoba on all of my social media, but Instagram on your Instagram. I'm on Instagram, Twitter, Facebook. Uh, but definitely follow Iconic Thirty Two Curators of Progress as well. Um. And you can find me in the hood near you. There you go. Cheers. Malik Yoba, man, thank you so much, thank man. This you, has man. been a great experience, man. Thing, man. Congratulations again, man. Thank you. Thank you, too, man. Yes, sir. You too, morphing into different parts of yourself. There you man. go, man. I don't know your story. Fucking guy. Well, this, guy's, this guy's your fucking, fucking ass, bro. Hey, what are you going to do? From, this guy went from Wall Street to jail to, jail, to the combat jack That's what they do. Well, well, come on, other steps, too. That's what they do. But before we go, I want to say one thing I really like. Like, when you talk about what was your best part you played, for me, I look at you like as somebody like you. You played the best part. You know, uh, because okay. real talk, I mean that. Because like just doing research, watching you over the years, I love diversified people. I love people that teach people to be diversified. And your biggest success to me is your heart. Because you have always given like and I like I I read all the outreach stuff. So having you on here I know is not only important for young black men, but just for young 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 people really trying to learn. Mm-hmm. and understand of what you have done and, and and that means a lot because even today like you know i i haven't made it yet i'm still trying nah, to nah, but no 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 but what i mean is i'm always want to give back and you you're a reason for that man i really i salute you for that so but let I me help you out man let me help you out man you know you gotta you gotta just do from where you are you know what i mean people think you gotta quote unquote make it but what does that mean no, no i know i know that i'm saying like 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 you don't have to be successful or you don't have to be rich to give back. Yeah, you don't have to be rich. And you, you just want to pay. That. Just want to pay your bills. And yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah. And you were doing that before even all this shit. So I salute oh, yeah. you. Oh, but that's you. that's where it starts, though. Yeah, exactly. That's yeah, where it starts. Yeah. So salute for that. And, yeah. and thanks for the cheers. Order. Cheers. That's what you do. He's doing it. Man. Yeah, that's right. Do what you do. Forget this fucking it. guy. You know, and talk to the guy. Give him some Russian. Give him some Russian. And I'm gonna give you a Russian straight out of Brighton Beach. Okay. There you go. This guy Malik Yoba is a fucking incredible guy. He's got. Two car, one Mercedes Benz, BMW, v- <laughs> fucking, he's got a girl, I buy a Louis Vuitton bag, of beautiful Barsh. <laughs> <laughs> I like it, that's good. Internet, this is Combat Jack, I've been working out in the gym, I'm tired of fucking having man titties, they're going away, let me tell you something, I'm really happy, because as these man titties melt into solid steel chesticles, I'm going to be rocking a sporty fresh combat jack t-shirt now these t-shirts are available for a limited time it's the logo tees we've returned them this is limited a limited run you got about 18 days left they're 25 dollars. great great cotton great for your chesticles women let your thetas bounce in these too mama listen go to teespring.com slash combat jack show get these teespring t-shirts 25 dollars a pop support the movement and look good make your chest feel happy hey internet you know don't ever let them tell you that the combat jack show does not love and respect the women as a matter of fact as i've said recently i'm so humbled and amazed at our growing women audience you know what i'm saying when we first started combat jack show five years ago it seemed like this was a sausage fest it was it was just <laughs> just dudes listen to us but i'm so humbled by all the women that continue to follow us on social media and support the Combat Jack Show. We got a special guest in the building uh, in, commemora- in commemoration 
of Women's History Month, we got the legendary Miss Shanti Das in the building. What's going on? Now, Shanti, how are you? I'm great. How are you? I'm doing great. Welcome to the Combat Jack Show. Thank you. It's a real honor, really, to be on the show. Thank you. I'm proud of all that you've accomplished in the last five years. Thank you. I want to refresh our audience's memory and mm-hmm. to our younger audience that don't know who you are. Sure. You've done some legendary things One in the two. music industry. A little bit, a little you've, bit. You've carried a certain city on your back. No doubt. T- talk about that. So I'm originally from the A, yes. Atlanta, Georgia. I uh, went to Syracuse University. I actually was on radio at Syracuse. I had my own college show and uh, I helped to promote and break a lot of artists there. So I was on my grind at Cuse. People thought I already was really working in the entertainment industry. I didn't know you went to Syracuse. I did. I went to Cornell. 89 to 94. I love Syracuse. Derek Coleman, yes. all those guys. Yes. Stevie Thompson. That's was my Sherman Douglas still there? Did he, Sherman was there my Sh- freshman year. Yep. I had season tickets to all the b-ball games because okay. I'm a sneak ahead and I love sports. So okay. that's a whole nother interview yeah, right. for another day. I'm a girl that likes sports and know her game. But um, anyway, so I got my experience and networked in college and started working at Capitol Records in 1991. I was a sophomore, so I landed a job actually getting a check my sophomore year. And then I met L.A. Reid. The rest was history. I got hired right out of Syracuse, uh, making $30,000. I thought I was rich. He hired me as promotions director. First record I ever worked was Players Ball. Wow. From Outcast, Outcast. which went on to become, you know, a huge record. And we launched the album Southern Playalistic, Cadillac Music from that. I did all the promotions for Outcast and did their marketing. Helped break Goody Mob, worked with Usher in that the early days. That Platinum Goody Mob. Yes, Ed Woods, remember that time we was at this club? Soul food. We was at, what, what club was we at? We was at some club. I think it was Atlanta. And we was at some club and the DJ kept saying, about to play that platinum goodie mob. Back was in that, the day? Black, back in the, when, right, the warehouse. Right when, they, I think it was the warehouse. Either the warehouse yes. or Kaya. So anyway, continue. Yep. So uh, Outcast, Usher, TLC went yes. on the road. Crazy, sexy, cool. Did marketing and promotions for them. Tony Braxton. So a lot of the artists I think that you love from the 90s, I had a little little something to do with. I mean, but look at Atlanta right now. Like, you know, look it, look at it as being the, kind of like the center of what's absolutely. going on right now. We were like the Motown yes. of the South, if you will. Because, um, you know, L.A. really was the man who kind of spearheaded everything for that city and helped launch the careers um, from the production side of Dallas Austin, Jermaine Dupree. And those guys ended up having labels after that. Right. Um, so, you know, we were the big guys in town and it was a great time for us. And L.A. Reed and Babyface sold the company. I moved up to New York City when he replaced Clive Davis at Arista. And I started, I worked Run DMC while I was there. Um, the Outcast Project, of course. I was the ba- bad boy liaison. So I right. got down with Diddy and that, his crew. That must have been fun. It was a lot of fun. That, that was an amazing time, right? It was. 112, you know, all those guys, total. Um, Big used to call me Shoestring. So, like, I, I know. Why did he call you Shoestring? Because Shoestring was my on air name okay. at Syracuse. And then when I figured, you know, being a female in the game, and I'll say this to all the ladies listening, like, I felt like I needed to kind of sometimes to divert the attention from guys trying to holler. I mean, you know, it's a social industry. I'm not mad at guys giving me compliments, but I really was trying to get my paper. You want to be serious. You want to be And I wanted serious. guys to respect me right. when I walked in the room. Right. The same amount of respect, and not just because of my ass or, you know, whatever. I, I was told Your that one back in right. the day. Right. But um, anyway, so, yeah, I worked really, really hard, and I just kind of used that name as, like, a nickname okay. back in the day. And so after Arista, I moved on. Johnny Einer hired me as vice president of marketing at Columbia. Then he formed Sony Urban Music. I became senior vice president. 
And then Sylvia Rohn hired me at Universal Motown in 05 as executive vice president. I was one of the very few, I think, females on the marketing side wow. to actually achieve executive vice president. I mean, a lot of people have that title now, but I like to think I was at the forefront you, of that. You broke ground. It meant something more back then. Exactly. But so, when did you get past the 30,000 point where you felt like you made it? Now you're starting to hit some bigger numbers now. Because I know you weren't making 30,000 with Sylvia Rome. No, 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 no. I was, it was a couple of big boy Benzes, yeah, by that time. Big bodies. <laughs> yeah, no doubt. I had the corner office, you know. It was a real check. And, and then you made a change. I did. You made I, a change in, in, in what year? I left uh, Universal Motown in 2009. Okay. Uh, my mother has Alzheimer's. Right. And so I wanted to be a little bit closer to her. And just a lot of stuff was happening in my life. Like and what? I had some health issues. My uncle died. And I wasn't really passionate about the game like I used to. I used I'm to so come to work. And I used to sit there, no lie, and like just be on a computer, like surfing different sites and looking at myself like, why am I here? And I just lost a part of, it felt like I lost a little bit of my soul. And, you know, at the time, I loved Sylvia, but we were whack at Motown. We didn't really have a lot of stuff that came out, unfortunately. Um, no fault of hers, necessarily. It's just, for whatever reasons, our stuff wasn't popping. Right. Um, but I did have R&B Live in mm. New York City. Okay. From 07 to 09. I remember that. Um, me and two of my other partners had, like, the hottest showcase for R&B music. So that kind of kept me hot <laughs> in the streets. Right but not necessarily at the company. And I was like, man, what am I doing? You know, I've gone from intern to executive vice president. And I just felt like I had reached that ceiling. So I quit. But let me ask you something. How scary was it to, to come to that decision to quit? Oh God. I mean, it was, that was my life. Right. This was something that since I was a little girl in high school that I had like worked so hard to achieve this dream, but I wasn't being fulfilled anymore. And I just had to do something different. So I walked away, moved back home. And I had a little bit of a nest egg, but, you know, I ain't have a, as much money stacked as I thought I needed. Because you had them Benzes. <laughs> no doubt. <laughs> I was wilding out way right. too much. Uh -huh. You know, the Giuseppes, the Chanel, I had to have every hot handbag. And ladies, if you're making money out there, it's good to wild out and enjoy yourself. But you got to put some money away. Okay. So I did all of that. I right. lived that lifestyle, right? So I went back home to Atlanta and I wrote a book called The Hip Hop Professional. And it was about how I went from intern to executive vice president. I, I touch on a lot of issues for women, um, like compensation in the workplace. Oftentimes, or the disparate compensation. Absolutely. Right. I felt like I was being underpaid right. for my male counterpart. And I had to fight for that. I had to go out and find good attorneys like the Ed Woods like and Ed Reggie's Woods. of the world. That's right. And, you know, really get what I thought I deserved. Um, you know, back in the day, I just felt like I faced so much discrimination as a female from the men with compensation, you know, getting blatantly hit on. The harassment. People, yes, the sexual harassment, you know, people I work with grabbing my assets, literally. Mm. And I had to check them. Right. Um, any lawsuits? You ever filed any lawsuits? Never. <laughs> None of that. Right. Because I believed in handling my business and moving on from right. it. Because um, I wanted this just as much as the next person. And so I wasn't going to let somebody strip that from me. If I felt like I was violated that much and I needed to take it there, I would have. But right. never had to deal with that. So I touch on a lot of those issues in the book. I touch on a lot of the, um, excuse me, women hating on women in the workplace because the cattiness is real. The jealousy, um, intimidation. It's just crazy how women... For some reason, I don't know why they get intimidated by other women of power. Instead of trying to help somebody up and lifting as you climb, they just try to keep bringing you down. And I had to fight through all of that. Now, when, when was your book published? It was 
The first version was out in 2010, but I relaunched it last year. Okay. And I added seven new chapters. So it's the Hip Hop Professional 2.0. It's currently on iTunes and Amazon. It's on my website, thehiphopprofessional.com. Is it, is, it, is it independent? <laughs> yes. Okay. I self-published. Congratulations. Thank you. I also put out another book, um, The One, Two, Threes of Networking, The Little Pocket Guide. So I'm speaking at a lot of colleges. Public speaking right now. Public speaking. I'm speaking at Dillard University. I've done Princeton, um, wow. Syracuse University, NYU. I'm going to do a school in Detroit. How's that speak, speaking engagement money? I love it. Yeah. How's the money? You can make, I mean, you know, right now, and I'm not even like represented by a big agency, right. but, I, you know, I'm getting three to five stacks of school. Nice. For an so hour. Yeah, to go nice. back to school. <laughs> and, I, you know, I would like to think I'm, you know, out there really giving some great information. But that's, to me, that's the norm, right. you know, and a lot of other people are making way more money. Of it's course. Just, but it's a hustle. You right. know, I'm. The promotions person, I'm the agent, I'm booking myself, you know, marketing, I'm doing it all. And you're, I'm and you're the talent. Absolutely. Now, 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 what are you doing? Like, like Ed Woods has been telling me that you're doing something fantastic for, for Women's History Month. So I'm about to launch um, an empowerment t-shirt line. Okay. Um, and I'm also doing a lot of community service work, helping homeless women in Atlanta, homeless moms and kids. What do you have to say to these young women that, 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 that feel that they're talented, but to compete? They have to be eye candy. They got to show their assets. They, they, they got to almost degrade themselves to be considered or taken seriously. Yeah, I think it's unfortunate. I do think that you're going to have both ends of the spectrum always, right, in life. There's always going to be good and bad. But I just want these women to find a balance in their life and just know that you don't have to do that. Right. And I really feel like, too, some of these younger executives coming up or, you know, ladies trying to get into the industry, they feel like they're the artists, too. And I'm like, you got the game twisted. You know, you're on social media and it's like, you're not the artist. You're the person behind the scenes, but they're scantily dressed and feel like they got to be up in the club turning up 24 seven. And I'm like, you got to earn that right. that right and that privilege, right. you know? And I, sometimes this generation, they feel like they deserve it or they're entitled. And I just want them to know like hard work still, you know, has to go into the game for you to be respected. It's It's okay to like be, you know, it's okay to be sexy. Skin it's okay sexy. to be I'm sexy. I'm not saying that. Right. I'm single, still trying to get me a husband. You know, I let the girls out sometimes. You got to do that. And that's okay. <laughs> you got to do that. But at the same time, like, I know when I step into a room that I'm going to get the respect because of the work that I put right. in. Where can uh, a Combat Jack Show audience find your book? At www.thehiphopprofessional.com. Okay. And one last thing I want to tell you about, I'm about to launch an initiative also called Silence the Shame. And it is to bring awareness um, about mental health, suicide, depression yes. in the African-American community. And, you know, in recent episodes, you've seen it dealt with on Empire, uh, with one of the cast members being bipolar, uh, being Mary Jane, just touched on it with um, suicide with African-American males. My father committed suicide and really? so did my best friend. And how, how, I, old, how old were you? I was seven months old, but I suffer from depression. Okay. Clinical and, depression. And I'm open, you know, I openly talk about it now, but I've been able to endure. And I just want people to like try to start peeling back the layers of shame and removing the stigma and just talk about it if you need help. What are some of the symptoms that one has to look at to really start considering if they need assistance, mental health, and the whole nine? For one, when people um, are just sad all the time, <clears throat> they are straying away from their normal routine. They don't want to be around friends and family members. They're not happy about anything. Um, some days I don't even want to get out of the bed. And literally, I'm just covered up in the covers. It could be sunny and 75 outside. All my blinds are down. 
Um, and it's certain things and pressure points, you know, that could trigger it. It really just depends. But I tell people not everybody wants to go to a therapist, but I encourage that. But it's certain things that you can do also being outside, you know, vitamin D is just a great therapy for you getting that sunshine and that sunlight and opening up your mind and your heart. You know, you've got to get out of the darkness. Um, there was one time in the industry where I contemplated suicide and I talk about it in my book, um, but I just fight through it. I'm a spiritual person. I pray my way through it. So whatever it is you do, just talk to somebody, talk to your friends. Don't shut people out. And did you have a therapist? Did you eventually seek out? Absolutely. Right. Yeah. Yeah. That's why I first forgave my father in 2003. I was living in New York city and I finally sought therapy and counseling and I was able to, to forgive him for doing that. You know, I'm, I'm glad that you're bringing this up about two years ago. We were having our, our, our cast of the combat Jack show was bigger and it got to a point where there was just a lot of tension, mm -hmm. particularly me and this guy. And we had an episode where we, we brought in a therapist. Really? I, I want you to hear that. We, oh, it's, wow. called, it's called, it's, it's called, oh, it's called a therapy that. episode. We brought in Dr. Maya Pettiford and she kind of walked us through triggers and, and, expectations. I want to post and, that because I'm getting all my stuff together. Now, I'll definitely content. send that to you. I would you. love to. No. And then you look Man, at what happened with Shakir Stewart, good friend of mine. Yes. You know, you know, Shakir, Chris Lighty, I know it's still a lot of questions out there about that situation, but as far as we know, um, he took his own life. And, and, and it, it's funny because I don't, I, you know, I never got diagnosed, but I remember, you know, the period before I left the industry, mm -hmm. I probably was depressed because I wasn't happy. Absolutely. I felt stuck in the game and having to maintain my professional image. Like, how is a lawyer going to walk away from this and do something and else? And so out? many people hide it, right? You could right. be smiling but just dying on the dying. inside. Yeah. I've been there. Yeah. I mean, over these last five years, I'm not going to sit here and say it's been all a bed of roses. It's been difficult. But, you know, I'm just glad I did it. I think everything that we go through in life, um, there's a cause and an effect, and it was a reason, right? There was a greater um, into the means of doing what I'm doing. And I'm just the happiest, quite honestly, I've ever been in my life. I, I know the feeling. Internets, listen, internets. I can't really hear you. This is, this is our, our friend Edwards. No, 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 I'm just Edwards gonna, in the building. No, 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 you know, I'm not allowed to talk much, but um, I'm on um, time out with um, Combat Jack. Exactly. But, um, no, I just want to add, is, is, is very interesting because that's actually... How you know Shanti and I've known each other for years. We've dealt with each other. We worked on each other side of the table with artists, but we actually connected. Um, when I don't know was a year and a half, and I I think I just called her hit out the blue because I was like, yo, I'm sitting here trying to figure out my next move going in, and I'm watching her moves, and then basically was like, you know what, we need to do something together. Now, Ed, were you a little depressed after the Son of a Gun? Now I wasn't depressed because of Son of a Gun. It had nothing to do with that. It had to do with a lot of other issues that dealt with a series of, you know, it all started when my father passed away, never addressing that issue, and then dealing with the issues that went around then after, and then after that situation. But it was more about, for me, I'm one who's so loyal to people, and you give your heart and soul to something, and I never told the inside story of really why I was so pissed. Because when you finance somebody the way I was doing and helping somebody along and feel like you're being backstabbed and you're not able to deal. See, I, I was just always dealt with from a different thing. If I got beat out of something, okay, I'm going back at your juggler. And I felt like restricted, like I couldn't go the way I really wanted to go at it. So you kind of had to let it go. But then there was other things that I just basically 
was honestly burnt out with the whole situation of being in um in the industry. Yeah. I just felt like at the end of the day, it wasn't the same to me. And then after a while, you know, you sit in the room, you made enough money, and then all of a sudden you're like, hold up, this shit ain't going to last forever. And then you, then you bounce back and you say, you know what, I'm going to tear this motherfucker up. Yeah. And that's what I'm about to do. But at the end of the day, <laughs> that's, <laughs> that's what it is. You Sometimes you got to go hibernate and come back with yes. the vengeance. And, you know. There you go. Shanti, I'm, I'm glad that you stopped by. Thank um, you so much for having me. You know, please let us know. Like I said, don't don't hesitate. What I'm what I'm really learning, like we had a great episode with with, with Malik Yoba. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, a couple of months ago we had uh, Kevin Lyles on the show. Mm-hmm. Um, some of the best episodes of the somewhat oh I don't want to say some of the best episodes, but some of the episodes that resonate the most with me are the ones where people talk about service. Absolutely. You know, and at at a certain point, it's not regard- what we gotta do. Yeah, regardless if whatever you have or whatever you don't have. You got to pay it forward. And sometimes service is just like giving up your time, right? Yes. Well, we I think that's the biggest a, thing. We don't have a lot of money. Everybody doesn't. You know, the average, what, 1% that are billionaires, God bless them. But everybody else, sometimes it's like just when that person needs you. Yes. Or, you know, we all have so much going on in our daily schedules. But if somebody calls you that really needs you, just be like, you know what? Fuck I got it. You. I got you. Internets, man. You know what it is, man. Yeah. Dream those dreams and then man up and live those dreams because a life without dreams. It's black and white, and the universe flows in technicolor and surround sound. Wow. Numenati! This episode of the Combat Jack Show was produced by Jonathan Menna, executive produced by A. King and Chris Morrow, and recorded in the Engine Room Audio Studio in downtown Manhattan. This is an official Loudspeakers Network's production.